Good morning, everyone. Um, this is Alexander Rose. I'm the executive director here at the Long Now Foundation, and welcome to our first um, large uh, online event, the Long Conversation. Uh, this is a format that was originally uh, invented by um, Art Angel out of the UK, um, who did a project called Long Player, a 24-hour version of a conversation like this, actually. Um, and we have been inspired and used that um, all over the world um, and for several of our own conferences. And uh, today we have um, about 14 speakers. Um, we're gonna be, each one's gonna have, each pairing will have a 20-minute slot each. Um, if there are problems with um, the longnow.org slash live page, um, please note that you can see it in Facebook, Twitter, our Facebook feed, our Twitter feed, and uh, YouTube feed uh, also. Um, and um, as you listen today, there is, um, there's some chat interfaces in each one of those. We're not gonna be doing Q&A, but we really welcome all your input, especially with the various technologies as we try them out. Um, we will also be doing our first uh, full seminar um, this week on Thursday night, uh, 7.30 Pacific with Jane Metcalf on the neobiological revolution, reporting back from kind of the cutting edge of uh, the, um, the synthetic biology space, which I think is going to be obviously a, a pretty um, pretty important space um, to deal with uh, similar situations to the one that we are in right now. Um, we are going to do our best to keep all the tech running today. We have, uh, you know, we're working from 14 different locations, um, and um, please bear with us. Uh, but uh, I'd like to welcome on uh, Bina to uh, start our chat. I'm Stuart Brand, the curator of this series of talks from the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world. But, uh, I'd like to welcome on uh, Bina to uh, start our chat. Hey, Xander. How's hey, good. Where are you uh, coming to us from? I'm in Boston other coasts. So we're already in the afternoon here. Cool. Well, uh, welcome. Um, one of the, the overarching theme that we're trying to get at today is, is obviously not uh, just the, sh the, the situation that we are in now, which um, plenty of people and you're, uh, you're with the Boston Globe um, covering very well. But what we want to do is take a little bit of a step back and talk about in general, long interval events and these can range from you know asteroid impacts to um uh earthquakes tsunamis um and they don't all have to be negative i was actually just trying to brainstorm ones that are potentially positive um, which maybe you and i can do a little bit today too um but in general civilization seems to be not so good at handling these um, we tend to forget after a few generations um how to build the right infrastructure how to build the right priorities um you know, the, the countries that seem to do best with this were ones that had recent outbreaks of SARS and MERS um, because they had built some of that infrastructure at that time. But I'd love to get your take on this. This was very much the subject of your last book, um, Optimus Telescope. 
Yeah, first and last book, The Optimist Telescope. And I'm just thinking for a second, I just have to reflect on what a different event this is than the event where I met you in late, late January, where there were 700 people packed into the SF Jazz Center when we last had a conversation. And now, of course, there are who knows how many, maybe five, maybe 5,000. Uh, so it, and it's just a very different kind of gathering. Uh, and so um, I'm excited to be part of it and just be being creative about that. Uh, I mean, I think this idea of historical memory is so important. So uh, we see this pattern. It doesn't even have to be generations. When when a natural disaster happens in an area, uh, an earthquake or a flood, you see spikes. Uh, and this is some Wharton research done by Howard Kunrather and Bob Meyer that has shown that you see spikes in people going out and buying insurance right after those events, right? When they're still salient in people's memory, uh, when they're afraid of those events happening. But as the memory fades as time goes on. And in fact, with some of these long interval events, we know that as time goes on, the probability of that disastrous event happening is actually increasing with time because over that time period, right, you you get closer to the risk, the threat happening. People don't buy that insurance, that earthquake insurance in California, where you are, for example, anymore for their homes. Uh, they forget um, these disasters. And so I mean, I put this into a broader category. I think historical memory is just one component of uh, a larger gap uh, between prediction and action. And, and I, what I really think is missing in that gap is imagination. So uh, historical memory is one way to revive the imagination about what's possible and not just what's in your most recent experience. And one of the stories I tell in the book is about uh, this engineer who was behind the Onagawa nuclear power station in Japan, which was close closer to the epicenter of the 2011 earthquake and tsunami, the Tohoku earthquake and tsunami that destroyed Fukushima and Daiichi. And that in Onagawa, the nuclear power station was built farther back from the coast with a higher seawall and at a higher elevation. And it was a particular engineer named Yanosuke Hirai who sort of insisted on that um, placement and that those protections. And the reason for that was because he had this knowledge of the flood in his hometown shrine from the year 869 during the Jogan earthquake and tsunami. And that sort of historical memory got carried through by story, by monument in the shrine itself uh, to this particular engineer who was then responsible for thinking about the future. And he did that in the 60s and then flash forward to 2011. And you have historical memory having informed the imagination of someone, which then informed the resilience and protection of a piece of infrastructure. And people in Onagawa fled to the gym of that nuclear power station where, as we know, Fukushima Daiichi was sort of ground zero, uh, even though it was farther from the epicenter. So I think that idea of how do you keep historical memory alive so you can so you can imagine what's possible is so important. Uh, but I also think it's beyond that because with some of the events and threats that are predicted, they might not even be, they might not have perfect analogs in history. And I think about sea level rise is one of those areas where, and it's a little bit different because it's not long interval, it's sort of gradually happening. Um, so it's not exactly like the earth asteroid strike, but uh, but where we've just never actually had a historical event or anything that even approximates it in human experience. And so cognitively, it's really difficult for people, whether it's everyday people uh, in our lives or leaders to be able to take those threats or opportunities seriously. And 
And I think on the positive side, it's interesting because, you know, the people think about like sort of the moon landing as this incredible feat of engineering. And of course it was, but before it was a feat of engineering, it was a feat of imagination. So to set that goal, to decide to do something unprecedented in human experience uh, took bridging the gap between Sputnik, which was the immediate sort of threat from the Russians to the U.S. space program at the time in 57 when that went up. Uh, well, it was it was actually Werner von Braun who vote, wrote um, Rocket Scientist uh, at NASA, who mm-hmm. was... Um, and these are just, I, I love these little digressions of like science history, but um, Von Braun was of course um, a former Nazi scientist who had been brought over to the US in Operation Paperclip. So his background was sanitized and uh, he was uh, basically rehabilitated and became a leading scientist at NASA in the late 50s and early 60s. And he wrote the sort of famous memo to Lyndon Johnson and John F. Kennedy after Sputnik. Uh, and he made the case for trying to go to the moon as a sort of next level, not just trying to beat the Soviets at their own game, but as a sort of next level stage in the Cold War and the space race. Um, and so I think that that it, it really does take right to to accomplish something that's unprecedented in human experience. It takes leaps of imagination and they can come from different sources from either the source of competition from the knowledge of history um and indeed from technology from story from myth indeed i think um yeah i think there's i was just now i was trying to think of some of these long interval events and you know some have um have these really global um ramifications where the like the one that we're in now some are much more localized like a tsunami or a storm um and then there's there's ones that you know have yet to happen that may happen that I think have the same kind of globally um, uniting effect that um, that we're seeing now, which is um, the something like a like if if search for extraterrestrial intelligence, for instance, heard a signal that was uncontrovertible intelligence, it would be this moment where we, as a whole species, uh, had a um, a kind of a focusing point where, and the world would always be different after that point in kind of the way that a pandemic is, but I think hopefully in a much more positive way. Um, and um, so, yeah, I think there's a, there's a difference between these, you know, volcanoes even have a largely, you know, at least regional type of effect more than, um, than global, depending. In some cases, we're seeing where it can interrupt um, at least part of a globe's uh, transporta- flying transportation system. Um, and um, in another story, I think that it was reminded, uh, I was reminded of as you were talking about Japan was that the tribe and the Andaman Islands during the um, the Indonesian earthquake. I don't know if you heard this story and I, it's hard to get much confirmation on it, but my understanding um, was that um, when that when the water receded, and this was a largely just a, a, a subsistence fishing tribe um, in the Andamans that are generally held um, without much contact, and um, and they're an African diaspora tribe that has come all, all the way around the Indian Ocean from, from Africa several thousand years ago, but they had in living memory, well, in, 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 in storytelling memory, um, when the water recedes, it will return back in more force as part of a as part of a kind of a fable and so when they saw the water recede they ran to higher ground whereas when you know modern people um you know ranging all over the the indian ocean basin saw it you watch you have the videos of them out in the you know walking out with cell phones to videotape 
the water going back only to then be consumed by this tsunami. And so we have these moments where uh, some of the lowest technology, the, um, the oldest forms of transmitting information, like storytelling that has been told from person to person for um, hundred, literally hundreds of generations uh, saved lives. And um, whereas the modern systems um, completely failed to warn people of, uh, of that kind of a disaster. That's so fascinating. I didn't know that story. And I really find it interesting, too, because it raises all these questions about the purpose of myth, the origins of myth, which sometimes have very practical reasons behind them. Maybe people people were telling stories actually to keep each other safe, not just to dream up, you know, some story of the afterlife to keep them, you know, warm at night. I find that really interesting. And it also reminds me of another uh, Japanese village, Murahama, where um, it was both a monument, but more importantly, I think it was the oral history. So uh, in Murahama um, Island uh, community of Japan, fishing village, um, there's a hill, which is sort of the high point of the village. And um, you would think during, if you know that there's a tsunami coming, you would flee to the highest point in your community, and that would be the safest place to go. And in fact, in 869, during that historic Jogan earthquake and tsunami, people fled to the top of the hill. And it turned out to be the point at which two tsunamis converged just based on the geology of the area. And that story that that had happened, as well as a plaque that was put there that said, do not flee to this hill. If there's a tsunami, do not flee to this hill. Sort of that message carried forth into 2011 and was also an effective warning. And I, I do think it's interesting. You know, I don't think like, I never think of these things as sort of mutually exclusive, like you can only rely on the technology or you can only rely on the story and the myth. But I think so often we privileged uh, we privilege the data-driven predictions and we neglect these aspects of human nature that are really cultivated by having cultural memory, by having tradition and story. And Sanders, so I know you've written and thought a bit about storytelling. So I just would love to ask you more about your thoughts about what the role what the role is for storytelling uh, when it comes to what we're looking at going forward. Forward because we have not just this pandemic, but obviously other uh, predictable but long interval events to think about for the long run. Indeed, I mean, I think I mean storytelling is um, is both our oldest and our best technology, and we um, for this type of stuff. I mean, even um, you know, even the written word, um, while it's been around for thousands of years, um, in a it's still difficult to pass on in many cases. And um, as I think Danny Hillis put it, you know, thousands of years ago, we wrote things on, on, in stone that last thousands of years, hundreds of years ago, we wrote things in, in paper that last hundreds of years. Now we're doing things in computers, which kind of is five years or whenever you swap your computer out, whichever comes first. Um, and um, so our storytelling capabilities um, are, while they have some of the best tools they've ever had in video and film and, and things like that, they're also, um, they're also not ideal for kind of campfire telling of stories from generation to generation. And I do think actually, um, you know, on this front, one of the things that helped uh, even our present um, situation was the, the really amazing movie Contagion that was done. Um, and that was, you know, that was funded by um, real science, uh, real science driven effort from the, um, the Skoll Global Threats Fund um, and, um, and amazing people consulted on it that had been part of real um, outbreaks and were part of those teams to solve them. And so and they did that. They, they, they used science driven storytelling to, with, you know, 
first run movie actors in production to tell a story that I think is, you know, it's now one of the most watched stream things, you know, right after Tiger King. Um, but it's, a, it's a, one of the most streamed uh, movies right now. And I think it's been actually truly, I mean, the amount of parallels in that movie to what we're going through are insane. It's so good. Um, and I think it's really helped, even though it, it may not have changed too many people's um, preparation habits, it certainly has helped them deal with the, the, the present moment, which I think is, is pretty key for sure. Absolutely. And it's so I think it's so useful. Obviously, it helps when you have the same movie producers who also care about and fund uh, resilience and preparedness for global threats in that instance. Uh, But it's so useful when Hollywood thinks about getting real scientists to advise some of these scenarios of the future and and help, you know, help sort of guide those into sort of realistic and predictable paths for the future and not just sort of, you know, concocted dystopia, which I think it can be tempting to tempting to do. And it makes me think of Minority Report, which uh, Steven Spielberg so, so cultivated a group of technologists to really think about surveillance technologies and how they could be used. And this idea of predictive algorithms was taken to an extreme, predictive algorithms that might, um, you know, determine people's criminal behavior was taken to an extreme in that movie with these sort of precog characters who were imagining people's crimes, seeing people's crimes before they happened. I, I should also warn you that um, the person that uh, Peter Schwartz was coming on with you right after this was a consultant on that exact film. So you, oh, guys, you guys should have some great conversation. Well, yeah, and um, as well as Stuart Brand, Global Business Network uh, brought together a group as, for several of films by those uh, movie makers as kind of their future uh, future reps. But uh, so please go on. Well, I was just going to say with Contagion, you have to really commend that film for, you know, striving to describe the basic reproductive number, which is something that is really important, right? When you think about an outbreak, how many people for each person who's infected, how many more people will get infected on average? And right. that- um, The R-naught idea was yes, very well right. done. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, to have people in the public able to understand that and able to make distinctions in how we think about this pandemic and history, how we think about um, its fatality rate, whatever tools can help the public better understand that, particularly when we don't have political leaders standing up to their role to make articulate some of those risk factors, I think makes a huge difference. Uh, and I do, I do think it's um, it's unfortunate that we we don't always have. Um, I guess we don't always have the context to tell the story in a in a way that's going to be compelling over time. So, um, you know, there can be a moment when a movie comes out and really captures people's attention. But as we know, we're never really able to with some with with a lot of these sort of events. There's such a long time frame over which to be sustained concern about them. <laughs> and so I think that's a bit of a problem. Um, I was struck also by what you were saying in remembering that George W. Bush, I think around the time of coming into office, read a book about the 1918 influenza pandemic. And uh, was it was John Barry's book, I believe. And uh, I think in... Um, in the descriptions of how that kind of affected him, I don't know him personally, but my understanding is that George W. Bush uh, took and was influenced by having read about that history in a novel, or you know, I think novel, historical novel set in that time. I could be wrong; it could be nonfiction, um, and um, made some very significant investments in pandemic preparedness. Not all of which survived, yeah. frankly, through the Obama administration nor to today. 
No, I think it's. Um, I mean, obviously, we look to uh, we look to our larger governments to hold you know the the kind of long term playbooks for these things and their their ability to keep them funded, keep them mattering um, through times of uh, when they aren't the next one. And I think they, the interesting thing is that you know the next one of these things is not going to be a pandemic, is my guess. It will be a different type of of long interval event. And so we will have then been really prepared for pandemics and then the next thing will happen. Um, so we're actually, we're at um, 1120 um, and um, it was so good to talk to you again after your talk and I'm gonna sign off and um, we'll bring Peter Schwartz on. Um, so I'm signing off from the interval. I'll be back on at the very end of the day. Thank you very much, Pina. And thank you everyone for watching. Nice to chat with you. You too. Hi, everyone. I think we're waiting for Peter Schwartz. Hi, Peter. How are you? Hi, Mina. Delight to meet you. It's a delight to meet you. And you know, I've wanted to meet you for some time because when I was researching my book, The Optimist Telescope, I read your book, The Art of the Long View, uh, and in fact, uh, told one of your anecdotes in the book. Um, so it's just a pleasure to connect with you and uh, be fellow well, travelers. It's mutual. I mean, I'm a big fan. I loved your book, uh, the uh, uh, Optimist Telescope. I loved your talk at Long Now. Unfortunately, I couldn't be there, but I watched it since then. I love what you're doing. And I must say, I just watched your interview uh, and conversation with, uh, with Xander, and I made about an hour worth of notes. Uh, <laughs> From uh, 20 minutes? Uh, we can discuss in the next 20 minutes. But it is true, as, as Xander said, we uh, I, I led the team that involved a lot of the people going to be on this conversation today, like Kevin and Stuart. Uh, that uh, were part of creating the world of Minority Report, and before that, the world of Deep Impact. And I think both of the films were interesting in the sense that they were kind of warnings that actually led to action. Uh, and so uh, from my point of view, they were quite successful in that regard. Well, say more about that with Minority Report. In what sense do you think it, it led to action? Oh, in two important ways, uh, one benign and the other, I think, highly consequential. And that is that I think uh, a lot of people saw what the world of the future might be like in terms of things like uh, digital advertising, things that recognize you, all the kinds of things that we now see in this world of digital agents, and actually began to create a lot of that. Uh, and so in that sense, it was realized. In the other sense, uh, what you pointed out in your conversation with Xander, uh, the warning about uh, or the implications of a universal uh, surveillance uh, a society. And interestingly enough, in recent, uh, uh, in the last year or so, what became apparent was that uh, while we said it in Washington, the real world is actually Beijing. Uh, and so many people have compared the world of Beijing today to the world of Minority Report. Um, and so I, I, I think it has created a language for conversation. That is, uh, uh, that's one of the goals of good scenario thinking. You now can name something. And many, many, many times I've seen uh, in print or in other conversations, why that's just like in Minority Report. So interesting. And the first point that you're making that it actually, it's, it's almost a different kind of prediction where you paint a picture of the future and then it starts to shape the future because yeah, exactly. of how you're predicting it or how you're imagining it, um, which um, seems to me with the, the retinal scans, that was such a clear byproduct exactly. of that. Exactly. Uh, I, I was really struck uh, by one of the examples in your book uh, about when you were talking to, you were trying to help people prepare for scenarios in oil companies in particular. You were at Royal Dutch Shell in the 80s, if right. I remember, as and yeah. doing this sort of before scenario planning became a buzzword. You were kind of doing this kind of thinking at Royal Dutch Shell, which I think pioneered some of these practices. And you describe a scenario where you were trying, you were trying to get this group to 
think about the collapse of OPEC and uh, you were just couldn't, you were, you were basically hitting your head up against the wall and trying to get them to do this. Can you explain exactly like how you had that breakthrough? Because I, I found that really compelling and it related to things that I found for the Optimus Telescope. Well, true. Uh, you know, we were, uh, and, and, and by the way, it's a perfect example of uh, uh, what you talked about earlier, uh, the failure of historical memory. Um, and, and we're going through it exactly right now. In the oil industry, they're consistently capable of, fa of failing to learn from previous collapses in the price of oil and the price of other commodities. And you could almost map the price curve from the collapse of 1986 to right now. Uh, and the oil industry, and particularly the Saudis, forgot uh, what happened uh, 30 years ago when the price of oil collapsed in 1986, I guess almost 40 years ago now. Um, and so uh, in Shell, uh, when I joined Shell, the big issue that they were worried about was what they called the cash mountain. Uh, how much money we're going to make when the price of oil doubled again and tripled again, because it had already gone up by a factor of 12 uh, since uh, the beginning of the 1970s. And so it was clearly going to keep going up. The, the phrase was 95 and 95, $95 dollars a barrel in 1995 and uh, 95 million barrels a day of production. So that, that's what people thought was coming. So the question was, how are you going to spend it all? And I came along and looked at scenarios and said, yeah, that might happen. But maybe uh, if this commodity is like every other commodity, the price will collapse and it won't be before too long. Uh, but they were, you know, the, the way I managed to get them was two things. The first was to show them, uh, in a sense, uh, their, the scenario they favored. They said, oh, yeah, we like that scenario. Uh, and then I could show them an alternate scenario and say, well, they could say, mm, yeah, we don't quite buy that. But, uh, OK, we'll pay attention to the indicators of what might happen. And then over the next two years, all of those indicators actually flashed. Uh, and so by the time two years later came along, they said, all right, now we believe that the price of oil is going to collapse. Uh, and we began preparing in two years in advance for exactly what would happen. And we moved ahead of the whole industry two years later as a result. But it really required dealing with their psychology, first of all. And then the final piece of the puzzle is we created a computer simulation, one of the very first, that they could actually play with. Uh, and they started literally playing with the model. And as we know, play is a great way to learn, you know, and one of the managing directors would say, oh, look at that. The Saudis increased production and you, your business just collapsed, <laughs> you know, and so they really engaged in a kind of collaborative play. And I would say that all of those directors that day who came out of that meeting say, I really understood for the first time the long term dynamics of the interplay of OPEC and the oil market. It's really fascinating to me uh, because you may or may not know this, but one of the sort of failures of scenario planning that I've documented was the Munich Olympics and the lead up to that where uh, the Olympic organizers actually hired a police psychologist named Georg Zieber to sketch out scenarios of what could go wrong at the 72 Olympics. And he very dutifully came up with 26 scenarios of things that could go wrong, which included, you know, everything from a plane flying into one of the Olympic buildings, which of course was way foreshadowing 9-11, uh, to someone falling in a, a swimming pool and almost drowning. Uh, but one of the scenarios he sketched out was of a Palestinian uh, terrorist group group climbing the fence of the Olympic Village at dawn and kidnapping Israeli athletes. And uh, of course, that scenario, Situation 21, came to pass in the 72 Olympics, but uh, the warnings went unheeded. And 
part of the history of that is really the way in which those leaders, to your point about psychology, uh, really didn't, they dismissed the scenario because they didn't want to believe it could happen. And they were trying to exactly. rebrand those Olympic games. They wanted them to be the Die Hitren Spiele, the, the cheerful games. I'm probably pronouncing the German. Yeah. But yeah, I, it, you tell that story, I think, in your book, don't you? Yes, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I think it is a perfect example of failure, exactly right. And, and it, now let me say, I don't think the failure was on the part of the Olympic Committee. I think it was on the part of the people who did the work. And the reason is this, look, I was a consultant in scenario planning. Um, and I can tell you that it was never a way to get more business to tell a CEO, uh, listen, I gave you the scenarios and you, you didn't listen. Uh, my job was to make them listen, to find ways to gauge them in such a way that they took it seriously. If they didn't, it was my failure. Um, hmm. Uh, and so uh, I, I see as central to the process of thinking about the future like that is how do you engage the mind of the decision maker? Good scenario planning begins with a deep understanding of the people who actually have to use the scenarios. If you don't understand that, you're not going to have any impact. So do you think you could have gotten uh, some of the leaders, for, for in particular the U.S. president now? I mean, what would what how would you have worked his psychology to try to get a threat like a pandemic to have been taken more seriously if you had well, if you could that, sort of in, in this case, that's a pretty easy answer. And that is to make him a hero early. Uh, that is to find a way to tell the story in such a way that Donald Trump uh, by uh, in January as you're actually warning him how you can be a hero to the American people. Because of course, that is what he wants in every interaction, right? This is a, a narcissist. So how do you make him be a winner in his narcissism from day one? Um, and you know, the, the honest truth is that in, with some CEOs that I've worked with in the past, uh, that was part of the strategy. Um, and so I think Donald Trump is an easy uh, person to understand in that respect. He's very visible. And so uh, the, the, the problem was that he couldn't see any scenario in which he was a winner. Uh, and so he had to deny. Uh, you have to give him a route out, uh, a route where he can win. And that's what I think the, the folks around him didn't give him. Yeah, that's a really fascinating point. And I think then the vanity of watching where the stock market was and not wanting to count the cases um, exactly. really yeah. took hold. Let him get out ahead of it. Right. So what do you when you think right now about sort of the next predictable long interval threats that we're not maybe putting on our radar screen at the moment or opportunities? What do you think about what's on your mind? Well, I think uh, one that is kind of obvious that is probably in some sense already underway. <clears throat> and, and that is that uh, the United States uh, is uh, 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 is uh, being undermined. Uh, by uh, foreign attacks, uh, and uh, they are part of a kind of continuous conflict in cyber war uh, that is uh, active. Um, and uh, it, it was happening before the pandemic, and it is now accelerating during the pandemic, because we are particularly vulnerable right now. Uh, and I think there will come a moment before too long that we will wake up to the fact that, in fact, there's a kind of war going on, uh, led by the Russians, uh, where they are trying to undermine the West. The last election was part of that story. Uh, there is a, a, a well-known Chinese book called Unrestricted Warfare, and it says if you want to fight the United States, you don't find, fight them militarily. We're, they're too strong. You fight them in every other arena. And that is actually underway, uh, led by the Russians, maybe a bit of help from the Chinese, but it is really uh, Putin, uh, uh, basically lowering the West so that Russia rises. Um, and uh, th that we're going to wake up to the fact that actually this conflict 
conflict has been going on for some time. Let me say it didn't begin with Donald Trump. It began a long time ago. Donald Trump is merely a symptom of the conflict. So to me, this bears some resemblance to sea level rise because I think about climate yes. change and that it's a slow kind of barely perceptible threat. There are moments right. in which it becomes obvious Hurricane Sandy or the 2016 election in, in uh, terms of cybersecurity and undermining our democracy. And so how do you get... I, I mean, I really grapple with this. How do you get people to respond? We're, we tend to, in our psychology, be very good at responding to discrete events and immediate threats. Uh, but when it's a slow boil, how do we how do we do better at that? Well, I, th I think that is a challenge. And, you know, and I think it points to something I actually I, I've been involved in climate change since the early mid 1970s. I was involved in projects at Stanford Research Institute doing scenarios for climate change. So I, I've been involved in this a long time. And because of the movie work and, and, and not long after Minority Report, I got a call from Roland Emmerich, the uh, uh, director. He says, I want to make a movie about climate change, but it's where a new ice age breaks out over the course of a weekend. And I said, oh, well, that's really terrible science. Uh, that isn't how it's going to happen. No, I can't associate myself with a movie that's terrible science. Uh, you know, we, we, I only work on realistic things. Uh, so this is just bad science. Sorry, Mr. Emmerich, I won't help you. Well, I was wrong, and he was right. Uh, the movie, at one level, uh, Day After Tomorrow, which was about an ice age that literally breaks out over the course of a weekend, uh, is uh, uh, highly unrealistic in one sense. Uh, but everybody understood it to be so. And it triggered a great conversation about climate change uh, all over the world. People began talking about it. Uh, it had a highly positive impact because people were smarter than me to recognize that actually it was a, uh, a, a fantasy story, but put on the table the kind of abrupt climate change scenario that is highly likely, not exactly as it played out in that movie. Uh, and so uh, I like deep impact. Uh, which was not exactly how things are likely to play out of a comet hitting the Earth and so on, but close enough that it has induced a very effective response. I think he was right and I was wrong. So I kind of, I side with your former self on this one because I watched The Day After Tomorrow. I saw a number of those climate conversations that happened after it. And I, ju I just do wonder about uh, the impact that it has to portray such an outlandish scenario that then people can watch and they can say, well, it's not going to be that bad. It's not going to be anything like that. So it's been exaggerated. The risk has been blown out of proportion. And um, it's easy, right? It's easy, easy either if you believe all is lost as... Um, Jonathan Franzen wrote in The New Yorker in the fall saying, basically, let's accept that doomsday is coming. And so let's just live. live it was a terrible article. It was terrible. Uh, I was think terrible. a bit of a crime read, against uh, yeah, humanity yeah, yeah. to say give up. Uh, and uh, but but, you know, I, I, I like his novels. I happen to like <laughs> like his work. Yeah, yeah, you're a good but, writer. But, um, but on that particular note, it was it was off. Um, but but then to sort of the other side is if 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 we're constantly portraying or if we are portraying scenarios that are so outlandish and unreasonable yeah, that people feel like they can't navigate those either and or they feel like they've kind of been tricked into thinking that's the threat when really that's not what we're facing when it comes to climate change. So yeah, and I, I think that's a reasonable argument. I, I, I that's where I came down. To be honest, that's where I decided. But I had my doubts afterwards. But I, I want to come to something you know that you you mentioned in your conversation with uh, Xander, uh, which is about imagination. 
Uh, and it comes to, you know, we're, just as we were talking about, about these outlandish scenarios. I, I do think so often the failure to see the future is exactly as implied. It, it, it is a failure of imagination. It takes a combination of rigorous thought and imagination. So if you want to do what's a realistic scenario on climate change, that takes both uh, rigorous analysis and, and uh, uh, real imagination. That's, that's plausible. So I think good scenario thinking is that combination. But fail, you know, if you don't have the imagination, it turns out to be very pedestrian and you don't really see the big discontinuities. So I do think imagination is a central part of trying to see the future. It's like the, the, the future of work today. People have a very hard time seeing it because they can't imagine the jobs of the future. Uh, but, uh, the, you know, we're going to reinvent work with lots of new jobs, particularly coming out of uh, out of the pandemic. Uh, there's one other thing that you guys talked about that I want to quickly mention, if I may. And that was uh, at the very beginning, you talked about positive discontinuities, big events, uh, and, and it couldn't come up with any. But I think there are at least three that I thought of immediately. Big science discoveries, things like CRISPR, uh, for example, that is a really positive, that really highly discontinuous and, and sudden uh, 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 long interval events. So yeah, really big discoveries. Great leaders, Roosevelt, for example, uh, Kennedy, for example, uh, people who really rise to the moment. And then finally, powerful social movements, like, uh, first of all, civil rights, then women's rights, now gay rights. Uh, they don't come often, but they are transformative positive events. So I do think there are a long interval positive events as well. Absolutely. And it's not that we didn't come up with them. We just didn't get to that part of the conversation. Yeah. So I'm so glad that you brought it up now. And in fact, I think social movements, um, importantly, a, a major component of social movements that have been successful across history is imagination, right? To be able to imagine the world not as it is, but the world as you think it should be. And to exactly. say, actually, we should be integrating these lunch counters. Actually, we, th we can't just accept that this is the way it's always been, that women have, haven't had the right to vote. And I think that comes from having both the inspiration of principles, you know, if you look at the principles of equality or liberty in the Constitution, serving as inspiration for later, later social movements in this country, but also from having the ability to envision society looking very differently. Um, on CRISPR, I think it's so interesting you mentioned that too, because I think the technology itself, right, is the technology itself mimics bacterial functions that are 2.3 billion years old, uh, you know, in the history of the planet. So in that sense, CRISPR itself is not new, but the application of the old, the application of the historic technology of the bacteria to um, mammals, to the ability to solve um, human health problems, I think is a leap of imagination that takes inspiration from the past. Where, And I think sometimes people think discontinuities have to come de novo out of nowhere instead of right. actually being um, building on, on the past as precedent. So I find that to be really powerful. And I think also, um, as you were talking about imagination, um, since we share that point of view, that that's an important ingredient, I think I think what's interesting to me about your noting the psychology and how you would have gone, um, how you would have persuaded uh, President Trump to take action or how you worked with those oil company executives to get them to take seriously OPEC collapse is that there's a component of empathy. And I think empathy is a strange word to use with our current president, uh, but <laughs> at least empathy for me, it's a sort of empathy with the future self and at least being able to empathize with yourself in a scenario you might face in the future, whether you've succeeded or failed in that scenario. And ideally, empathy 
with future generations. Ideally, empathy beyond just uh, what you, who you know, and what you can see in front of you. And so I'm, I'm really interested in that as, as sort of maybe the next, um, the next frontier of how we extend our ability to, to plan for the future. I think it's about my time to, um, to tap out of this conversation and pass, pass the baton. Um, Peter, it was such a pleasure to get to connect with you and uh, finally, not quite in person, but almost in person. And I think this might be, a, we're, we're getting closer to approximating an in-person meeting. Yep, yep. Well, you know, I think one of the great, this is going to lead to a lot of innovation in, in how we do these kinds of things. You know, we're, we're, we're making it up on the fly, but the tools were tools we used to have. Now we're going to reinvent the tools for all of these kinds of events and in social interactions online, because we're going to be at this for a while. Right. Might as well not let the good crisis uh, go to waste. Um, exactly. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to have met you. Thank you. Great to meet you, too. I'm, I'm... Hi, Peter. Hey, Peter. Nice to see you. It's been a while. Um, Wonderful to see you. Uh, all really our well. viewers and listeners, you, you have to know that Esther Dyson and I have known each other for I, almost as long as I've known my wife, Kathleen, who's sitting right over here, uh, that uh, uh, we have collaborated and been together for many, many, many years, over 30 years. Many different places, uh, Global Business Network, Long Now. Um, we, yeah, right. And were you on the board of EFF my, my as well? My favorite picture of, of my son, Ben, and me is at your conference back uh -huh. in Tucson uh, in, 2000, in 1994, I think, when he was four years old. And now he's, uh, what? A PC what? form. He's 29. Yeah, 29. Right. Great. Uh, so how are you doing, first of all? I'm doing great. Uh, I am one of these lucky people. No jet lag. I, I used to travel all the time. I'm sleeping well. Uh, you know, I'm not afraid of getting infected. I am afraid of infecting somebody else. Right. So, I think I've already had it back in February. Really? Yeah, because I, I sat next to somebody on a long, long flight who was coming back from China or somewhere. I, I spent a lot of time in airport lounges, so it's, uh, you know, but I still have to follow all the protocols because I don't know yet. I'm trying to get a serological test. Uh, yeah, uh, well, you know, as we know, they're not quite ready yet, mostly. No, so, up with that. Uh, so, listen, I, I, there's something I wanted to talk with you about that's kind of okay. obvious. Uh, 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 for those of you who don't know, uh, uh, Esther Dyson has been one of the promoters from the very beginning of all the m forms of remote communication. Uh, 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 PC Forum mm -hmm. was the place in, and, and recognized that uh, PCs were no longer about personal computers, but personal communication, right? Right. Though we did get 500 people together in the same place because that face-to-face -face intimacy is so important. So I, I loved that. But one of the things that you have done in recent years, by recent, I mean most of the, let's say the last 20 years probably, is to focus on the role of uh, telemedicine, uh, the roles of digital in medicine, the role of technology and how it can enable new ways of, of it. And you've been one of the people who's kind of been most effective in, in talking about this. You know, this is the moment where all of that has come to fruition. I mean, are you seeing how that plays out now? Well, to be honest, I wasn't it wasn't, oh, this nice white lady is here with her telemedicine for you. Uh, the project I run, Wellville, is focused on sm five small U.S. communities that almost by definition, because they're small, are underserved. And you know, what's, what's really happening is 
telemedicine, it, it, it's still about connecting people. And there's right now an epidemic of loneliness. There's an epidemic of domestic violence because people are stuck at home with people they haven't learned to get along with. And you know, to some extent, telehealth counseling can help. I'm an investor in two companies that do that. But the, the answer, I mean, we can, we can talk about that, but what I really wanted to talk about is the fact that these, these threats were not unanticipated. And what we are, the real problem is we are not building resilience into the population. Uh, you know, I love the long now, I'm on the board, but at the same time, we're, we're pretty intellectual. And, you know, but, but thinking, thinking long-term, it's, it's a psychological thing. It's what you learn right at the beginning. You know, the marshmallow test, the, the famous Stanford test where you took a two-year-old and you said, okay, here's a marshmallow, you sit here, the research is gonna come back in 10 minutes, maybe 15, and if you haven't eaten the first marshmallow, you get a second one. And then they study these kids years later, and the ones who waited, who were able to have delayed gratification, were more successful in just about every way you can count. Educational achievement, income, uh, whether they had a job at all, all etc. But the kids weren't just sort of randomly long-term or short-term. The ones that felt secure and who trusted their mother, who trusted, you know, the, the kid's not stupid if he's been living in, in a place where, you know, if they promise, if they give you a martial art, grab it because you can't believe what they're gonna say. And so we've, we're raising a generation and, and a large population of people who don't trust anybody. And so they are going to grab, they're gonna think short term. And ironically, our president is one of them. Uh, it's not just poor people, though it certainly, being that short term often makes you poor because you can't plan, you don't stick out through your education, you're, you're not a long-term thinker, but it's, it's a psychological thing. It's not just an intellectual, oh gee, I'm gonna be a long-term thinker, I'm gonna read three books and understand how to do it. It's something that goes deep back into your past. And the thing that scares me right now is how many kids are going to go through, you know, whether it's two weeks, you can probably get over two months, two years of living in the kind of circumstances and having the kind of trauma that is going to make you into a short-term thinker that, you know, you're constantly on alert. You're, you're always fighting the current battle rather than thinking long-term about the things Long Now wants you to think about. You know, people need to be psychologically as well as intellectually ready. You know, it's a very interesting point. I must confess I hadn't thought about it, but I mean, mm -hmm. most of us uh, have important formative experiences that are, are of the time. You know, the, the Depression was significant for the Depression families. The wo World War II, where everybody went through- The Holocaust. Right. Uh, if for our generation, it was the 60s, right? The civil rights movement, uh, all of that sort of thing was really quite profound. Uh, the hippies, et cetera, whole earth, right? We're all both whole earthies, uh, important formative experience. What will the pandemic mean for the, the kids who are today, to say, between six and 20, you know, and how that will shape their yeah. worldview? 
Well, it's, it's I mean, the, honestly, the, the impact goes back right to the beginning. You know, if you're born now and your mother is totally stressed, uh, you know, those, those first few months of life, they're, that's even worse. Uh, it sort of, the older you are, the more you've learned how to adjust. So I'm really concerned much more about the, the infants and, and the maternal response. And, you know, you're born into a family where the parents don't get along. I mean, just, but yeah, the ones who are six years old, they'll have interesting memories. Some of them will have real problems, but it's, it's the young ones that are typically most vulnerable and where the, the impact is the longest. Well, it's, it's, I, you know, uh, I was born in a refugee camp of concentration camp mm -hmm. survivors, and the study of those said that about 95% of the ones who were like that, unlike me and my brothers, uh, tend to withdraw from life. The, the lesson was from their parents' experience that life is profoundly threatening, uh, and yes. the way to do that is to hide out. Uh, and that was about 95% of the children of survivors. As it happens, my parents were exceptions, uh, and they, yes. they were and they, in their view of life and, and, and produced uh, two rock and roll musicians and me. And, and you are an exception because you had, you, you had that luck, that one or two people that kind of protected you and yeah. taught you how to deal with these vicissitudes. Uh, and so, you know, in a sense, if you can't get it from your parents, how, how can... How can the social infrastructure around you supply it, whether it's a care worker or good daycare? I mean, most daycare is basically child storage. It's not child care. Well, in fact, Bina in a previous interview talked about mm -hmm. one of the most important qualities being empathy. You know, yes. and, and this is a time when empathy is really profoundly important, right? Uh, empathy at every level, empathy for your neighbors, empathy for your family, empathy for uh, healthcare workers, empathy for displaced workers, uh, empathy for the guys who were serving you at the restaurant uh, last week and so on. Uh, and probably the, the most important virtue we can uh, manifest today is, is empathy uh, and imagine what it would be like in other shoes. Right, and actually show that. I, I sort of make a point when I walk around, which I do, properly distant of, you know, like thanking the guy raking the leaves or the, the exactly the it's policeman or whatever. Yeah. I, I, you know, Kathleen and I go walking in the neighborhood and first of all, there are lots more people out walking uh, and they're all saying hello. And if there is somebody working in the garden, they're talking. Uh, it, the, the level of social engagement as a result of the social distancing, call it physical distancing, yes. actually been a, a wonderful part of the experience. Yeah, and you have to sort of do that expressly if you're wearing a mask. You can't just smile. You have to actually exactly. say, hey, dude, I'm smiling. Yeah, somebody said to me yesterday as we were out walking, says, oh, I can't see you. I can't recognize who you are behind your mask, right? You know? So, yeah. in fact, one of our neighbors was walking around with a name tag on his mask. Yeah, there's another one. She has a big smiling, you know, lipstick smile on her mask. There's, yeah, and yesterday, the guy in in Whole Foods was wearing a skeleton mask, which was kind of interesting. I told him it was cool because, yeah. yeah. So, so I, I want to come back to, you know, you're thinking about, you know, it, it, as you might imagine, we've been doing scenarios uh, on the future right. of where things are, are, are headed. Uh, do you have a feeling for the kind of scenarios where you think uh, how this may play out? Yeah, I mean, clearly business you know, I would not want to be in the airline business right now. I think people are going to travel much less, both because they discover, wow, it's so nice without jet lag. And also they're beginning to realize how much they can actually accomplish over Zoom. I mean, 
people will want, I, I still think that face-to-face -face gathering in restaurants, maybe with the tables more separated and, you know, doing team building exercises with your company. But there's so much that you can just do with a Zoom call. I mean, and you watch kids who are sitting around texting each other when they're 10 feet away. This was even before. A social calls with friends over Zoom. We are. We had, we had a 20-person family call on Sunday night. That was a lot of fun. And by the way, how's your family doing? You know, your father passed away not long ago, a hero yeah. all. Uh, uh, yes. How's the family doing? Um, we're doing well. Fortunately, he died before everybody got distanced. So at least some of the family, we went down and saw the family in Princeton, Emma from his wife, you know, the, some of the kids. And that was great. And then the whole thing kind of exploded. And, you know, in the end, he wasn't going to live forever. And it would have been, it was horrible enough as it was, it would have been even horribler if it had been during coronavirus and Emma couldn't have been with him when he died and we couldn't have gathered. And I mean, that's, that's this thing about, we're still chemical beings. It's one of my favorite science fiction lines is the, the, the guys who are looking down from the spaceship and, and saying, it's so weird. These, those, they're obviously electronic people. These guys, they, they think with meat. Yeah. How, how weird. And we, we also smell. And I mean, interestingly, coronavirus seems to get rid of your, your sense of smell, which is So strange. coming back to the scenario, you started to uh, spell yeah. out a scenario. Yeah. Okay. So clearly, I think less travel. I mean, that doesn't mean no travel. And I think people will still value travel precisely because it will be somewhat less frequent. And, you know, there's, there's nothing like actually being in a place, but in terms of business travel, I think they'll, they'll realize the utility, it just isn't there for, you know, maybe you get together for two or three longer conferences, but you don't go back and forth all the time. There's so much you know, I can understand the social, if you like, the the emotional thing of this guy comes to sell you some, uh, let's say, some medical equipment, and you know that he got up at 5 a.m., crept out of the house, drove in his car, spent half an hour looking for a parking space, sat in a tight little airplane to get to you, and now he's here selling you his thing. And there's just some again, empathy for this guy who went through all this trouble to sit in front of you. And that's, that's effective if you're a salesperson, but it's, it's probably not that effective that it actually makes sense for us as a society to keep doing it. Um, lots of, you know, this is not the last pandemic. This is not the last new virus that's going to emerge. Uh, you know, and there, one thing about Trump is he's, he's well known as a germaphobe, and you know, maybe he was right. At the same time, I'm concerned that people, you don't want to be so hygienic that you, you don't trigger your immune system enough, because you know, I, I still think kids should be eating dirt and you know, licking the dog and that kind of thing. 
Yeah, I think I, I've, ha- I've actually been, had very good, robust health. And I think growing up in a, in a refugee camp, you get exposed yeah. to everything. Yep. And it, I mean, again, what stress either destroys you if you're already vulnerable or it strengthens you because, I mean, exercise is basically physical stress. That's what people do. They, they stress themselves every day to make themselves stronger. And usually it works. But if you're, if you're already sick, that same stress can destroy you. So we'll be more conscious of that kind of thing. Um, but I, you know, and I hope we will understand better all these long-term impacts of health and, you know, the people who are healthy are less likely to die. I mean, we've known that forever, but they're also less likely to die of an infectious disease that they could otherwise have survived. I mean, that's diabetes, just cortisol levels, hypertension, all the things that, you know, quote, all these preventable things, mostly based on diet and nutrition and, and exercise and, and getting enough sleep. I'm, I'm wearing my sleep monitors and... Yeah, I mean, here, you, you clearly have good genes, but how, how old yeah. was uh, Freeman when he passed away? 96. Yeah, so that, you know, you're starting with good genes, right? So yeah. that helps. However, I, since I've known you as long as I have, I know you swim every day. I know you eat properly. I know you take really good care of yourself. Uh, so, you know, clearly you, you haven't relied only on your genes to get to that 97. No. Yep. And uh, I also was smart enough to buy gym insurance before everything shut down because <laughs> my pool, of course, isn't working. But I have a rowing machine, which is what I do now every day. And, you know, that it's, it's good for your mind. It's, it's not just your physical body exercise. And, you know, and that, again, bring, gives you that capacity to think long-term because you're not in constant hyperactive, reactive mode. And, and then you can start asking these nice intellectual questions about what is, what is the future after the pandemic? Well, so just to wrap up, you know, you've been an entrepreneur, you've run organizations, you've run big events, you know, what, you know, if you had uh, one of your investees in around one of the CEOs you've invested in or uh, one of the companies you're working with, what advice would you give them right now? I would give them, it, it would really depend, you know, most advice is pretty useless if it's general. So it would depend on their particular business and capacity and so forth. But Fundamentally, think long term. If you have resources, invest them now because this, you know, it's just it's a great time. There's very little competition. Everybody's scared. It's really easy to find good employees because so many, you know, like it or not, so many people have been laid off, and you can really make a difference in people's lives now. This is a real opportunity, and that's what I'm trying to do. I'm. I hesitate to say this here because I don't want hundreds of people sending me their deals. <laughs> and I'm also helping to support the deals I've already made because this is a tough time for many of them. But it's, you know, this is exactly the time to have courage. It, the world will change, but there will also, yeah, it's like, this is not the time to give up. This is the time to think long-term, persist, invest in the future and, you know, think, Think what is really meaningful. And I, I hope that the big thing that comes out of this is people do start to think, well, it's my family, it's my friends, it's my integrity, it's my empathy. 
and yeah, maybe, maybe I should start living a healthier lifestyle so that the next time something happens, I'm better equipped to survive it. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think your message is really uh, right on target. I mean, we at Salesforce are still hiring people. Uh, mm -hmm. We pledged 90, for 90 days not to lay anybody off. Uh, so we're committing to our employees. And we've set up a fund actually to support our customers, to pretty the small businesses, to help them stay in. We're actually giving them money to stay in business, uh, actual cash grants. So, uh, you know, uh, it is this is an opportunity to both be supportive, build loyalty, uh, build relationships, and actually build for the future. Uh, uh, people will remember that uh, at the end of the day. Well, I think our time is about up together. Esther, it's a delight to be with you as always. Likewise. Uh, yeah. And uh, both on the uh, Long Al board and on the GBN board before that and so many different ways. Uh, I love you and, and your whole family. Uh, I'll Thank be you. off to somebody else who's a favorite of mine, Ramez Nam, uh, who you get to interact with. Uh, one of the most right. uh, interesting minds in the Bay Area today. Truly in hey, Bay Area. not just... Not just the Bay Area. Hi, Ms. <laughs> Teeter, thank you. Great. So do now I yes. Now Hi, I get Esther. to look now I get to look yeah. at you instead of looking cross-eyed because <laughs> you you yeah. It's a delight to see you. Likewise. We, yeah, uh, I think we uh, We spent we time in Seattle a year, ago. a year or two ago. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, indeed. And my condolences as well. Freeman's Thank death you. was uh, yeah. a loss to all humanity, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, a, um, it's been a weird, a weird period, but I'm also moving apartments, so it is, in fact, a time for long-term thinking. You know, 40 years of stuff yeah. in the apartment, my father, this strange short now, and then with luck, mm. a better long now. With luck, a better long now. So I'm fascinated, I know you, you and Peter talked about this some, but with the work you've been doing with Wellville, I mean, how directly relevant to coronavirus is that? If it, well, Do you see that you can boost people's health in a way that makes them more resilient? Not, you can, but not, not in two months. I mean, this is, yeah. this is the challenge. And so with Wellville, I mean, at this point, we, we want to see how we can take this short-term crisis and, and still foster long-term thinking, but at the same time, you know, we're not holding seminars on how to think long-term while you're trying to look for the PPE and the masks and, you know, yeah. where's the food bank and, and how can we give people access to their SNAP benefits. So we're, we're trying to do short-term help, but I would say the one thing that I'm personally most focused on is this issue of making sure that we don't damage the children because the long term starts, you know, AI people like to talk about training your AI and, and what we really need to do is train the brains of infants mm -hmm. more effectively. And, and you think this is exceptional stress for them? It's the stress is not the stress is not exceptional, but their reaction to it is because their brains are still being formed and they're still learning, you know, should if, if mom goes away, is she going to come back? If, if I'm hungry, will there be food? If, you know, is, and then the worst case is, is, is daddy going to beat mommy or not? And if you, yeah. if you live through that, I, mean, I, I, I have two really great book recommendations. Um, okay. Yeah. One is just journal of a plague year. 
by Daniel Defoe, who also wrote Robinson Crusoe. And it's amazing how much has not changed. Yeah, the rich people and the poor people. The rich people go away to the countryside, the poor people stay and do the work and are kind of replaceable. The, uh, the suspicion of people who may or may not be sick, the whole, the social interactions, uh, the government un undercounting of the number of people who are dying. I mean, many things have changed. We're not you know, throwing people into carts and pits and a lot of things have gotten better, but still it's, it's a wonderful and startlingly modern book. You know, you think, oh, those guys were so old-fashioned, they didn't have any self-awareness. Huh. But it's, it's, it's highly recommended. And the other one is... And he's writing about, about the, the Black Plague? He, he's writing about the, the Plague of 1665. Okay. And the book was written in 1722-22 by the... I'm looking for the other one. Um, it, in 1722, by Daniel Defoe, who was the nephew of this guy who decided to stay in London when everybody else was fleeing, and you know was lucky enough not to get sick, just as some people are. But he chronicled everything. His nephew happened to be an amazing writer slash journalist reporter, and it's it's just fascinating. Any big lessons from that? If you could say, um, here's one thing I should take away for the current time. Well, put it this way. It, the plague did not change things that much in London. I mean, afterwards, uh, labor got paid better because there were not enough laborers left. Mm -hmm. uh, there was perhaps a little more sensitivity, but fundamentally, in a way, it's amazing how little changed. And as I said, in some sense, nothing has changed in human nature. So. Yeah. That's the first lesson, which, you know, this wasn't just now, this wasn't the first time, and it won't be the last time. The point you made about the rich people and the poor people having very different outcomes is, is on my mind a lot. You know, I have the luxury of most things I do, I can just do electronically. Yeah. So work from home is pretty easy if you're sort of a white-collar worker, but if you actually work with your hands, uh, with your body, either you're out of work or you're working in hazardous conditions. So that is a striking inequality there. Yeah. And you're, you're also likely to be unhealthier in the first place because mm. you probably haven't had access to the same good food. You haven't had that same luxury of a supportive upbringing, perhaps. I mean, it, whatever, it's, it all compounds it. But I should start interviewing you. What are you, what are you thinking about? <laughs> um, I've been thinking about. I, so I did a podcast uh, with uh, David Brenner, our mutual friend, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. uh, and a couple other people. And uh, one of the things that came out there was, you know, spell out an optimistic future and spell out a pessimistic future. And for me, you know, I look in the U.S. in particular, and I think, okay, an optimistic scenario would be we realize and we accept the society that our social safety net isn't there. Uh, and that we, you know, get better access to health care for all of the population, less tied to employment. We think about things like UBI and maybe a universal basic income. And, and universal maybe, child care, maybe? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's super relevant right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I know that's right up your alley with what you found with WellBill. And then the the really hippy-dippy is globally, we realize that we're one humanity in this together and we have to band together to fight things like this. But I'm just as worried that in times of uh, danger and perceived threat and scarcity, people become more parochial, more nationalistic. Uh, I'm worried that in some ways the countries that have had the, are seen as having had the best response to this are more authoritarian countries. Mm-hmm. I'm worried that things like test and trace, uh, which right. absolutely is the right way. Yeah, surveillance. Um, Yuval Noah Harari had a, an article where he, he wrote that uh, temporary powers given to government in a time of crisis end up being permanent. And mm-hmm. so, you know, South Korea also did an amazing job of using people's cell phone data and, uh, you know, cameras everywhere to trace exactly where they'd been and find out who they'd interacted with. And I think that's a... a a smart approach for us to use, and I'm worried that if we give that power to government, it won't ever go away. Yes. No, there's a real, there's a real challenge how you can do that, and I, I mean, ultimately, you can't do it in a privacy-protecting way unless you can trust your government to keep the data secure. And you know, do you? No, no government I've seen is is that trustworthy, including <laughs> ours, and it's yeah. It's very scary. Um, I'm involved with something called the Commons Project, which is an attempt to do this in, in a not-for-profit, non-government way, starting with health records. We sort of repurposed some of it into a, a COVID checker. But what's interesting about it is the back end that is sort of the data. It's a data st- distribution system with very strong protections and informed consent for your data as an individual. You know, you can decide whom to s- share it with. And yeah. you could also say something like, I want to share it with the government for the next three months, but no longer. Um, this is unfortunately all not yet completed, but the, the yeah. basic idea is having very strong control of data rather than just privacy, and then having a valid and honorable independent third party like the Commons Project vetting the integrity of the people you think you want to share your data with. But that's... Well, I, I hope you got it done. <laughs> yes. And it's, it's aspirational, but it's what we need. Yeah. Uh, it's really... Yeah. Uh, all this stuff is likely to get started and then then get worse. There's a lot of racism now against people who look Chinese in particular, and that's horrifying. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I want to question something that you said, though, because I've been thinking about, you know, mm-hmm. do people just stop traveling after this? Not and, totally. Yeah. I don't think so either. Like, I, the last time we saw it, I think, was at mm-hmm. Saifu. And so, you know, it's one of these conferences. It's like 300 people in it. It's an unconference. It's total, uh, not anarchy, but it's totally bottoms yes. up. And it's the serendipity of those conversations. So that's what I, I, none of the tools that we're using, and maybe the tools will just get better digitally mm-hmm. to do that too. But I, I feel a missing of, of that sort of 
actually, you know, walking up and overhearing somebody else's conversation and joining in and things like that. I, I totally agree with you on that, but I think we will treasure it more. And mm-hmm. you, you know, you won't go every Tuesday for your company sales meeting in, in Tuscaloosa. You'll, you'll go every three months and you'll be part of this bonding experience. And the, the face-to-faces will have to get better because they will be rarer. And, but we won't, you're right, we won't totally stop traveling, but we'll, we'll value it more. It'll be a, it will be perceived as a luxury. And, you know, it has been because travel has been so cheap and it might get more expensive and then slightly less confining, which would be kind of nice. But yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of face-to-face or right now what I call F6F, you know, face to six feet face. (laughs) That's good. I'm going to use that one. So you, I mean, you've been an investor. You said you're you're investing now and, uh, but do you see... Yeah, and I'm in theory I'm investing right now, but I haven't written a check in a while. <laughs> you know, it's it's a slightly scary time, right? Yeah. Um, but do you see this driving a wave of new innovation? Like, are we going to see things that are way better than Zoom or advances in VR or telemedicine? It, it seems like oh, yeah. all of that's going to get pushed. Yeah, telemedicine totally. I mean, it's totally crazy to schlep around. I mean, about 10 years ago, we said it's totally crazy for some doctor to have to get into their car and come to your house. Yes, but it's also totally crazy for you to get into your car and go to the doctor where all these other sick people are. Yeah, we're all And so um, I'm, one of my investments is a, it's kind of like Netflix for, for uh, Suboxone. You know, huh. I mean, addicts shouldn't have to go to a clinic every morning. People with addiction shouldn't have to go to a clinic every morning to pick up their drugs. It's, it's crazy because it makes it much harder for them to get a good job because they're spending half their time going to the clinic. It's, yeah. you know, the, the more you can do remotely, I'm also an investor in a telemonitoring company called 4D Healthware. Uh, you know, give, give people the, monitor, the devices, whatever they are, set them up, and then do it remotely until there's a problem. So the practice of healthcare is going to change Dramatically, I don't think so much by replacing doctors with bots, uh-huh. but by replacing people's travel with, you know, just get online and talk, and you know, show them, show them your skin, show them what your device says. Uh, you know, there is, I think, for a first encounter, whether it's when you're hiring somebody or you're doing a deal or you're you're a doctor, you know, ideally somewhere in that stretch you you do see them physically present but then it's sort of like the the human connection but then all the transactions and the data exchange that can be remote yeah i mean you're persuading me and just taking away that overhead time of travel is a huge benefit even if everybody is perfectly healthy yeah and then you can spend more time at home with your family and, and build that bond yeah there's actually there's a great startup uh you know sort of a later stage startup here in seattle called 98.6 a buddy of mine is the chief medical officer there, and they, they are an all online. They do use bots. They use bots at the front end. Mm-hmm. So when you, you chat with it and it you know gets your symptoms and so on and so forth and gets as much as it can before passing you off to an actual physician yeah. uh, who can then you know have more focused time with you. Uh, so it seems I think they're probably going to do I thought I always thought they were going to do well, but it seems like this is just going to push everything more yes. in that direction. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's huge, partly. I mean, with this thing has exposed a lot of things that are really impractical. <laughs> yeah, like all the travel, like all the, the physical stuff. Logistics is going to change dramatically. Yeah. Uh, so what worries you? I mean, are, you, are there things that you're scared of in terms of the world's response to COVID-19? Yeah, the rise of racism and, you know, both sort of political national isolationism and people, you know, some people becoming scared of one another. Again, the, the impact on children who are just getting their brains trained right now. Those are the things that scare me the most. And just the damage that's going to be done to so many people who had, you know, they were already kind of tentative. They, they were short of money, they had no resources, and now they, they're being wiped out. Uh, Sam Lesson in The Information had this wonderful piece a few months ago about the fact that it's, it's not just rich or poor, but the rich have the ability to take risk to get richer, yeah. whereas the poor can't even take those risks. And now, I mean, it's, it's dividing things even worse. Yeah, and we see that in startup data, right? The most, not all, but most startup founders are sort of upper middle class or above because yeah. they can take that risk or they're... Right, they're, they can live with their parents if they have to, or they have a Stanford degree, they can always get another job. Exactly. I mean, when I went to start writing my books, I had the luxury of having worked at Microsoft. So in addition to having a nest egg, I knew that I could get another job in tech. So the risk was profoundly less for me than for you know, friends I know that have you know, written five books as their main uh, source of income yeah. while raising kids at home. But at least your, your books made the world richer overall. Oh, thank so you. thank you. Thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you for everything that thank all you. the insights that you great. provided the world. And yeah. I look forward to listening to Catherine from the Green Room. Yeah, can't wait. Well, Esther, always a pleasure and a delight to see you. Likewise. F6F, sometime soon. F6F, sometime soon. Take care. Thank you. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Ramaz. Now, what do you go by? We haven't met. I've heard you called two things in this conversation. Uh, you can call me Mez. Uh, Ramaz is my full name, but my friends call me Mez. Please call me Mez. Okay. Well, let's 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 declare to be friends. Um, uh, you know, I'm I'm uh, I, I watched your Long Now talk uh, last night, but I knew we were going to meet, meet this way today, uh, and because uh, I hadn't seen it in in when it happened. Um, besides the fact that Xander um, had no hair, it was it was a very it was very striking. Um, uh, but I was so intrigued by um, you know if we if we kind of zoom out a little bit from where we are, and and with your um, ability, your imagination as a science fiction writer, um, I I really wanted to hear um, you know and you, you've both written science fiction and written about uh, the power of new ideas. What do you think it's going to take to really invest in really transformative innovation in the in the moment we're in? Um, you know, I think um, aspirations aren't high enough, to be totally honest, at least in the public health side. I think, uh, you know, what S and I was talking about, more startups will pop out for 
telehealth, our video conferencing tools will get better, maybe virtual reality will get a renaissance, everything will have uh, delivery and so on. All of that's just the private sector is going to take care of that. But when we think about uh, the health infrastructure, no one's really talking about the sort of health surveillance that we need or the health monitoring that we need. People are you know, saying, oh, we have 150,000 tests being run a day. Amazing. In a country of 330 million people, we should be running millions of tests per day if we want to get people back to work. Uh, you know, when I uh, travel to Asia, you always get your temperature taken by a scanner as you're walking through because they're looking, people that are sick, long before COVID-19. So in some sense, I think just the aspirations uh, aren't there yet, particularly on the, the public sector side. Yeah. Well, you know, if you think, if we just, again, think about the, the spirit of this conversation of trying to think longer term about how we get better ready for these kinds of things and how um, fascinated with the psychology to point, point that um, Esther made and that Peter also made, um, but when I, I, I do, I work with um, nonprofits and philanthropy as well as businesses and, and, you know, thinking about there's an awful lot of people right now trying to think about how this amplifies or accelerates the issues that they're interested in or, or retards them. Um, and, you know, when I think about one of the best books I read in the last year was um, Adam Hochschild's book called Bury, Bury the Chains, which is about the absolute unimaginable thing of in the late uh, in the late uh, 18th century to imagine ending slavery in England. Um, and I just, you know, to, to your point of what is it that we need to think about in an aspirational way that is, um, you know, if we were to play with your, you know, how, how might we um, not have this divide us further, but bring us together more um, in your, with your science fiction hat on, what story might you tell about that? Well, you know, I think we could say after World War II, we had the, the UN really come into existence. And so we've had moments in time where people have realized that there's a risk that can't be addressed by any one country, that the risk of warfare between countries required something bigger than that. So we have the World Health Organization, but it doesn't seem like it's fully equipped to deal with the scope of things that we have. And to make it so, I think, would require a real collaboration between nations instead of the finger pointing that I'm seeing right now. I mean, China is trying to spin things such that it wasn't their fault. Uh, and whatever, I actually don't think it was China's fault. I think they made mistakes. Uh, Trump is trying to spin things so it wasn't his fault. I take no responsibility whatsoever. And it's just, there's this, it's too easy to play domestic politics by accusing another nation of being the one really to blame for whatever's happened. And it's gonna take some different level of thinking to get out of that because these issues are really global. Well, you know, it, it's one of the things I guess that gives me the most hope is how we, com how we combine the technological capability that we now have um, with some different ways of thinking about organizing our activity, you know, that's maybe not so national based. So, uh, uh, Larry Brilliant, who is a friend of many of us on this call, um, and his the project that he chairs called Ending Pandemics, um, has been working for many many years on how you build kind of 
early warning systems using technology in the places in the world that, you know, were most likely to have diseases passed from animals to humans. Um, and, you know, if you, you sort of go out um, to the to the question here of, of you know, if, if it's a natural human thing that we're not very good at these chronic or infrequent things, um, how how is it that we could get better by combining new kinds of institutions, new kinds of um, uh, new ways of working with the technological capability um, in and kind of imagine what might be possible uh, with the new interdependence that we have that wasn't before, um, I think is really, really interesting to look at. Um, but it would require a lot of investment and a lot of capability building that um, for the, you know, certainly the, this, the government in this country hasn't been up to for a while. Some philanthropy, you know, it's interesting to think about what kind of philanthropy might be much more farsighted and take much bigger risks than we've seen from philanthropy in, in the last 10 or 20 years. So what would these institutions look like? What would you imagine if you could wave your wand and, and you chaired a committee for the U.S. government, what would you be recommending? Well, I set myself up for that one, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think that um, one of the things that fascinates me about this moment and that, that um, you know, if you, uh, is is the most things in most kind of big openings in history were not about one thing. They were about the way multiple things came together at the same time in sort of surprising ways. And well, and one of the things that happens at these moments, I think, is that it's possible to think about new relationships and new allies, you know? So for instance, a lot of small business people in this country are going to go out of business and, and, they're going to be open to thinking about their future and what they do in the next business they start and who's their ally and, you know, in ways that, you know, don't fit into any old ideological boxes, I would guess. Right. Um, so when I look ahead at what these new institutions might be, I think they're going to be, um, they're often going to bring people together uh, cr cross, they're going to be hybrids, they're going to bring people together cross issue sectors or cross you know, business and nonprofit and cross country, you know, it's going to um, bring people together in relationship that never would have been in relationship because you'll need these new capabilities in different ways, you know, so you often have a lot of social movement people who are very suspicious of business and very suspicious often of tech, historically of technology and not so much now. But so how how might they be, there be completely new partnerships? How might the tech companies who are going to be massively empowered, you know, the big tech yeah. companies buy this, how might they, um, they invest in new kinds of partnerships uh, and, you know, much more um, enlightened, uh, you know, in terms of creating the conditions in which their businesses will need to succeed. Um, so, so I guess, I guess I think what we're gonna, what I, what I think we'll see and what I hope we'll see is the invention of a lot of new institutions um, that are much more, uh, that don't look in an analog way like either businesses or social movements or traditional nonprofits. 
you know, something like the like Gavi, the Global Alliance on Vaccines and Immunization, which will play such a critical role in this coming period, is a is a kind of harbinger of the type of institution you're going to need, or the Global Fund for I think it's AIDS and tuberculosis, um, that where they've brought together um, many, con- you know, there's a kind of global infrastructure that then invests in countries, but the countries have autonomy to uh, decide, you know, to set their own priorities. Um, and, you know, you any any kind of one size fits all in, 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 in is, of course, never going to work. Um, so we need a different kind of global institution than the ones that were invented after World War II, it seems to me. Um, and we don't just little glimpses of what that might be. Um, yeah. You know, one of the one of, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, your point. Um... I had a couple of thoughts. One is your point about the tech companies being more empowered, I think is actually a really good one. We think a lot about the losers in this transition, but so many Silicon Valley companies are going to be more important, more powerful than ever, right? And it is interesting to see Salesforce uh, giving money to small businesses, Google giving uh, free advertising credits, Facebook as well giving free advertising credits, and in some cases just direct cash to small business. So I think maybe there's a perception a, that uh, they are in a privileged position, and B, that they don't really exist without a robust economy of some sort, without some businesses out there that are using their services. Yeah. You, you know, as I, I wanted to ask you um, if we can step away from the pandemic a bit, um, you know, one of the, you know, a whole bunch of the, the, the global stressors that were in place before this happened are you know, still there and still, you know, and climate and energy is a big one. And that's, you know, you, you shifted, it seems like, you know, a few years ago to um, energy um, investing and, and, you know, I'm, I'm curious about um, what you think this moment is going to mean to the, you know, the kind of, um, to, to how we think about tackling this very long-term you know, slow moving, uh, not a crisis. It's a chronic, it's a chronic disease. that's going to intensify, uh, yeah. the, the climate and, and, and the need to shift the energy system. What do you think are the implications for that long-term issue from, from where we are? Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting. There's been a lot of, uh, conversations, uh, op-eds written, Twitter threads about, uh, what coronavirus teaches about climate change and, and it's an example of you know the type of thinking that we need. I'm not so uh, optimistic in that regard. I, I still think we're going to make enormous headway against climate change. We're not on path for two degrees C, but I don't think we're on path for the four or six degrees Celsius people sometimes talked about. I when I look at it, coronavirus is actually a much easier challenge for people to conceptualize. I think of humans as hyperbolic discounters. We we care far more about the very near term than we do about the long term. And we discount that the future at a very, very steep rate. And so even with coronavirus, well, first the coronavirus, you have this, these incredible uh, carbon emissions and especially air quality changes. You see these pictures of uh, New Delhi and India before and after, like a year ago versus this week. And it's just, you know, brown haze and crystal clear blue skies. It's just amazing. But when the restrictions are lifted, people are going to get back in their cars, is my belief. 
uh, and we still have you know billions of people that barely have access to electricity to transportation to meet all their their needs and so on and so that tells me something that even though we clearly can see the benefit of this nevertheless people are going to make choices that optimize for their convenience their whatnot that have this effect on, on climate and it, it that in turn tells me something else which is in in the environmentalist movement there's a couple of different trains of thought of how we address climate change and on on sort of the more far left of the, the deep green is the notion of degrowth limiting uh economic growth even like reducing the size of the economy and I think what we're going to see after coronavirus will make it clear that that's just not going to happen. That people are barely willing to be in lockdown uh, for something that could kill them uh, a couple weeks from now. They're going to be even less willing to do that for something that they perceive as a you know multi-decade threat. And so the solution still has to be that we make clean choices, clean electricity, clean transportation, clean industry cheaper and better than the old dirty ones. That's the way that we win. Um, and that's a hard story to, to tell people to some extent, uh, but it is an area where we're making progress. Well, it t- ties to the psychology conversation that's been a thread in this um, long conversation so far of, of what human beings um, pay attention to and why they pay attention to them. Um, and. Uh, you know, one of the things that when we think about the different shocks, one of the things that I'm praying for is that we don't um, that we don't have um, uh, other big shocks while we're so uh, yeah. vulnerable. Indeed. You know, I, I live um, north of San Francisco uh, near where the fires were really bad. Um, and I think this fire season this year is just going to be terrifying. We, we had a dry Winter and um, the ability to to respond will be um, will be less, and the grid will go down. And you know, when people are more yeah. de- when people are more dependent on the yeah. internet, you know, the, yeah. all of these things. And you can imagine, you know, let's just pray in, in California we don't have an earthquake while this is going on. <laughs> but um, it, you know, it's a, but the there but but the point you made the the thing I wanted to say is just that that there are these different types of things that. That the pandemic is so different than than climate is so different than than a natural you know a, a natural disaster like a like a hurricane or a or a or a fire. Yeah, yeah. I think it is about that. What's attention grabbing? What can dominate the news cycle ongoing? And what gives you a a clear and present sense of threat right now or in the horizon that you can think about? Uh, that has a way bigger impact to motivate people than something that's actually maybe a hundred times bigger in impact, but mostly shows up a decade or more down the road. And I, to your point about forest fires, I mean, PG&E and Southern California Edison both had extensive plans uh, for fire prevention, like work they were doing on their power lines and so on to, to clear away brush. And they've both basically said, we're not doing anywhere near the amount of this work that we planned because of coronavirus. So I, I think that that's a, that's a very concrete threat in, in California, the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I, I, we're getting close to the end of our time. I, want, I just want to keep tapping into that science fiction writer in you. Um, what do you think could surprise us? 
what could surprise us after this? Yeah, I mean, like it, when, when you play around with that storytelling part of your brain yeah. and you look ahead at, at and, and the kind of second and third order effects of uh, looking again longer term, not just the immediate crisis and, you know, not the kind of, you know, what does this mean in the next few years kind of thing. But what, what do you think could surprise us? Well, the things I think that are always the hardest to predict are uh, social responses, uh, and that gets into political responses, right? Uh, you know, Esther was talking about this book, The Plague Year, The Plague Year, I think, uh, and the plague led to a, a reduction in the labor force. It led to workers making more money, and that indirectly led to the Industrial Revolution, right? And it also led to workers uh, being more politically active in demanding their uh, their rights or better treatment conditions. So what will happen here uh, globally is going to be more xenophobia that has negative ripple effects. Is it going to be really a rollback of globalization, which could mean ultimately more violent conflict between nations? Or is it going to be uh, you know a worker solidarity movement where especially blue collar workers who don't have access to health care if their jobs are gone uh, forced to stay at home for months, potentially without work, are going to be demanding a better safety net. Uh, so I think any of these things, that those political ramifications, those cultural ramifications, are probably the biggest ones that are, that are hardest to predict. Yeah. You know, I mean, my hope is that we'll actually, um, you know, when we think about the things that will be accelerated, what's already happened with, you know, the things that have happened politically in the last month were literally unimaginable you know the beginning yeah. of the year um i'm hoping that that you know it will become unthinkable to go back to the lack of a real social contract for the 21st century you know that we can actually design a social contract that deals with what is going to be a larger and larger and larger gig workforce it's hard to imagine that that's not where we're headed I certainly hope so. What else? Do you have a do you have another hope? Like something that you hope comes out of this? Well, I think that um you know, I think we're going to end up with I mean, I think the the question of what kinds of economics, uh food production, additive manufacturing, things that might actually move more local and regional uh and you know instead of the kind of just in time global supply chains we've had that sort of when you when you imagine what's the world we could end up with what kinds of new institutions and new arrangements for people we could have it isn't just that we need new global cooperation which we must have but it makes me wonder whether um whether the thing that people have talked about for a long time that we need to move to a more local and regional um, economy, what that might mean, and whether this will, this could accelerate that because of the, um, the what's happened to the, um, what, what, what could happen from some of the more um, difficult um, uh, relationships between nations, um, but also the environmental impacts, you know, being less. So that would be another thing that's possible. What about a fear? Is there a possible consequence of this that's negative that you worry about? Yeah, I mean, I think both near term and long term, um, you know, when I when I think about the thing that I think is going to matter the most in the short term, it's whether we actually have a real election in this country this fall. 
and um, and uh, so many things flow from that and um, uh, and not not just in terms of the outcome but if we actually can have a real election uh, and and so I, I really am very concerned about what happens to the these creaky uh, democratic institutions that were invented in another time and can we can we invent ways of with new technologies and things that are going to accelerate new ways of engaging people and giving people agency um, in in their lives um, because that's going to be the thing that actually gives people hope and um, you know gets beyond the kind of uh, you know people have to be able to look ahead and say they can take action to make a better life for themselves and their families um, and um, I'm hoping that there will be things we can't imagine that will come out yeah. of this um, to, to do that. Um, but I think our time is just about um, is just about over. It's wonderful to meet you. I hope it's I will get to meet you, meet you again in a different uh, different environment. And um, on behalf of the Long Now Foundation, of on whose board yeah. I serve, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Catherine. Pleasure to meet you and enjoy your conversation with Kevin. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Hello, Catherine. Kevin, Kevin, hello Hi. there. Well, you've been listening to all this. What's on I your mind? Been. Yes, it's really been great. Uh, lots of ideas. And um, I want to come to one part that was mentioned in previous talk that I know that you have some interest in, which is um, how do we make thinking long term, particularly about these long interval events, how do we make this natural? How do we make this something that not just some elite people are doing, but it's a cultural thing. It's something that's embedded and people kind of do. It's kind of a literacy. Do you have any ideas about um, if we can do that? And if so, how do you think we could? It's a form of empathy in some way, yeah. right? I mean, it's a type of, I think Bina was talking about it as an empathy with your future self and with future generations. And so I know that you think a lot about empathy. And so how do you, do you, do you, can you imagine a society in the future where this becomes the, a natural thing to do? Or is this something we always have to work at? Hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, um, I, I do think it's... Um, on one level, it's counterintuitive for, I mean, it's, 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 it's not something that humans do naturally as we've been talking about, that if you're, if you're trying to figure out where you're gonna get your next meal, the last thing you're gonna be thinking about is your long-term future. On the other hand, I think that thinking long-term is, um, is the way that um, pe you know, people have always made meaning. Um, and so when you first asked that question, I didn't think ahead, I thought back. Um, I tried to think about, you know, I was thinking about indigenous peoples and the, you know, seven generations. And, you know, I was thinking about the way my, the way my own imagination about the long term got engaged first was, um, was in understanding my family history. Um, and, uh, and I think that, that because when you're young, it's really hard I think in some ways it's hard to think you'll ever get old or that, you know, it's hard to, and so it's easier to think longer term the more you get older because you have more 
you, you have more um, experience. Uh, and so, I mean, when I think about what, what one of the reasons I love thinking about the long term is that, and, and being in, involved with Long Now, is that it's a, um, it's a way of orienting myself and, um, and, and having horizons of time that, that I won't see, you know, over that horizon, but, but being engaged with, um, connected to the generations before and connected to the generations after is, gives my life, um, meaning. Um, but how, how do you answer that for yourself, Kevin? Um, you know, it's funny as we talk about his, the historical references to ways in which past cultures were able to remember the height of the tsunami and things like that. There were elders involved. And yeah. so you kind of want to have the, the equivalent of a social elder, but not individuals. You want to have institution that in some ways is remembering. And I was thinking that, you know, we actually have one institution that does think about um, interval events, and that's insurance. Insurance companies are sort of set up to try and figure the odds out of something happening disastrously, or maybe even, uh, you know, like a lottery in terms of benefit, you know, something that's we wanted. But they're, they're actually looking at this and they actually have some role. And it would be interesting to actually have a conversation with insurance companies about whether they were expecting this pandemic and the extent to which they're going to have to pay out or not and, and whether, you know, um, they were right. And so, so, so we have a kind of a proto version of this that maybe we need to, to move forward and maybe we need to um, think about other things that are, um, you know, asteroid impacts and things like that, which other institutions are thinking about. But maybe there is a way to formalize that memory of past events that is useful and yet not hindering us. Because what you don't want is the grumpy old uncle who tells you, yeah, you don't want to do that because in the past it never worked. Um, and, you know, we're never going to fly and all that kind of stuff. So so, so there, there's an art to having that cultural memory that's going to be useful without hindering progress. And... Um, it, it occurred to me that maybe um, in the insurance business, that there's maybe a model for that that we could uh, you know, bring forward, make make more prominent, or maybe make more transparent in terms of helping us remember the fact that um, things in the past could be useful now in terms of these long-term intervals. So. So that doesn't really answer the question about whether I think it's native, a native thinking. I think it's a kind of a literacy that we have to teach each other, like reading and writing. I mean, reading is in some ways not a natural thing. We, we make it very natural because we do it all our lives and we can look at a bunch of symbols and just understand it. But that's not something that's really natural. It takes four or five years to learn. So I, I think of this as a kind of another techno-literacy that we want to bring into schools and um, have exercises and practice and make it native in that sense where we, uh, this is something you do. You, you begin to think about future generations. You begin to 
see them in the same way we can see our ancestors and uh, have empathy for them. So, so, so. Well, you know, it's, 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 um, I'm not sure, uh, as we're hearing an echo, I think, um, this time, but I'm not sure it's a teachable thing just to individuals, Kevin. Um, it, it's a, my question would be back to this institutions and um, and it makes me think of the pace layer model of, of that Stuart put has put out of the the different layers of civilization to you know commerce fashion commerce infrastructure governance I think culture nature I'm maybe missing something in there but but culture is you know carries the stories but but insurance was an institutional invention for risk management that sat underneath commerce that makes a certain type of commerce possible, right? So it, it makes me wonder whether there are, um, you know, some, some things that need to be invented to, to carry the lessons, help, help us learn and keep learning and not forget and, 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 um, uh, and and making those things more visible, really, um, uh, and and not you know it's a little bit like I, I don't know that every you know it's not a, how many people do we need to be literate in doing this? Probably not that many, but if we had institutions that were that were trusted and capable of of doing it. Yeah, uh, it's it's true. We we we. You know, um, we, we probably don't need a lot of people who are expert in it, but I do think that the idea of thinking ahead and being empathetic to future generations is something we do want to have on a broad base. I, I, I think just as we sort of have this expanding circle of empathy, which has gone out from the family to clans to states and nations, then to all races, and then to maybe all species. It also can move in time as well. The circle of empathy can move forward so that we are also empathetic, including in that as us, our future generations. And um, so, so that's kind of a widening of, of that circle of empathy, which I think is um, should be at the base of the institutional activity. Traditionally, that would be spiritual and religious. Um, right. Uh, it's an ethical, I mean, that isn't just a literacy, that's an ethical stance. Um, right. And so one of the things that kind of thinking about these interval events and thinking about the long term does force you to do is to think about things that are bigger than yourself which is sort of the realm of the spiritual and religious is, you know, a story that's bigger than just me. And um, you're right. I think maybe in the past, a lot of the elders have been kind of a religious elder type with the long view, the big view. Um, and we might need another kind of big view elder that has that memory of what has come and will be inevitable in the future we just don't know when you know this ep another epidemic will come my young ones for sure <laughs> uh so. so kevin the um one of the things here is that the um uh we're talking about authority structures in a funny in a way right that that are 
things that what will people trust in uh, to that actually in order to care about the future, you've got to trust that you have one um, and you've got to trust in, 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 in institutions. And right now, um, the place we're all having to put a lot of trust is in is in the global real time virtual science happening on the planet. Um, and um, I know I've heard you talk about how how this particular moment and uh, and I'm, I'm curious about what you think it's going to take for us to to trust in our future and to trust the experts that we're hearing from. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think I like to kind of um, construct this in terms of how we know things, yeah. um, and I think what's what we're seeing we're 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 in a we're in a transition time, and it's not just this current virus; it's accentuated the transition. But we're in a transition time where we've gone from trusting in authorities, or authorities have been in, in or trust have been in authorities to kind of you know this postmodern world. We have to kind of assemble truth and stuff, and this is this is um, put us in a position where all of us, me included have a difficulty in kind of figuring out like, okay, there's all these experts claiming expertise, even among doctors. Um, and there's a little bit of contradictory information right now. It's really, I mean, science really works well getting a consensus when you have time to check each other, to have peer review, to go through publications, to take the, the doubts and to retest. And so that's how we come to a consensus, but it takes a lot of time in this really fast moving era where this virus isn't waiting. We don't have the luxury of having that kind of scientific consensus, the normal procedure. And so we are sort of having to turn. It's like, well, there's guys in this, this person thinks this, she thinks that. I don't know. Um, and I think that model of like not knowing, we're moving so fast that, that we're kind of like moving ahead of the speed of science even though science is accelerating itself, um, that makes us in a moment where we don't know who to trust. Um, you know, what everybody knows remarkably is sometimes we have this kind of contrarian idea of the Steve Jobs is like everybody knew uh, you, you, you have success in developing something that everybody knew was wrong. Um, the Wright brothers. But actually... Most of what everybody knows is true. <laughs> you know, I mean, most of what we all know is actually true. And so most of what everybody knows is true, but sometimes it isn't. And so um, we have a procedure to kind of ferret that out with called science, where, where we can have a kind of consensus over time and we agree. But if we are moving so fast and we have AI coming and we have all these other things and viruses happening at this global scale, which speeds things up, then we're kind of outstripping our ability to kind of know things. And I think that's, that may be with us longer than just this virus just time. Virus. Yeah. Well, aren't you guy, the guy who wrote the book called Out of Control? <laughs> right, right, right. So, so we, we don't have control over what, yeah. we know, what we know. And there's an awful lot of need to feel in control now and to feel, you know, and... Uh, I think that to me it seems inevitable, as your work has pointed to for a long time, that you know a lot uh, in most situations a kind of top-down control doesn't work. In this one, it's actually been needed, 
But the, the future is going to be a lot about to what degree we build trust in and authority in the ways in which top down and bottom up meet, you know, as you've as you have often said. Um, and right. Right. Um, it's yeah, I, I think we, we, we are figuring out a new way to know. And in that knowledge would come trust. And I think um, that's why I kind of like this uh, frame it in terms of a literacy. So I want, you know, when young people have to kind of understand in a certain sense that they can no longer, they, they have to assemble what they believe in themselves, that it becomes something that you just can't inherit from an authority. You actually have to have critical thinking skills. You actually have to understand that for every expert, there's an anti-expert over here, and you have to kind of work at trying to figure out um, which one you're going to believe in a certain sense. And so, um, so I think as a society, we are kind of engaged in this process of coming up with an evolution in how we know things and, and where to place our trust. And maybe we can make some institutions and devices and technologies and social etiquettes and social norms to help us in this new environment of kind of assembling truth. Yeah, if I were to think about the thing that worries me the most increasingly is that um, the, the, the absolute dizzying complexity and speed um, uh, uh, that things move and, and that keeps moving the frontier of what's possible, but our ability as human beings to process it and understand it can only move a kind of step at a time, you know, to the, to, and, and, and so our ability to take on board and understand and um, make sense of uh, is, is just constantly lagging the, um, the speed with which things are increasingly moving. And I think that's true for our institutions as well as for us as individuals. So somehow, part of this literacy, um, I, I do think is personal practices like meditation and, and other things that help you to get grounded and to slow down and to, and to understand what, what you can't control, that we cannot be in control uh, in, 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 in the ways that maybe we, we would like to be. Um, yeah. Um, and there's, and there's a, there's a, always a, um, there's an advantage to, to having that kind of bottom-up stuff, and the price is that we don't get to control it. But the benefit is that it's much more powerful in what it can do, and it's, it's more generative without our control. And so um, I, I think, yes, uh, I'm a big believer in um, sabbaticals, taking time off, slowing down, not because this stuff is bad, but because it's so good. Right. I mean, because it's because it's so powerful, we want to actually step away from it, get a long term perspective, a different view of it, a break from it, come back. Not because it's toxic, but because it's so powerful. It's it's like way too strong for us. So we need to have that perspective of stepping back. Yeah. So it's a like a um, so maybe part of the literacy is learning to slow down in order to feel the empathy to connect with the things that are beyond your lifetime back and forward and that actually slowing down may be, how to slow down may be a critical part of the literacy. Yeah, 
and uh, you just suggested something to me, which I think may be true. I have to examine it. But I think, I think when I think about the far future, that helps me slow down. Yeah. If you're not thinking about the next five minutes about what you need to do now, tomorrow, this week, this month, then you have to go really fast. But if you can think about, well, what about a hundred years from now? Will, will this matter? Well, will, um, what will be important? That actually is in some ways for me, it helps me slow down and get out of this um, rapid acceleration right now. Yeah, it's kind you know, of, it's kind it of actually, weird. It does, for me, it does for me too. It's a, it's a kind of a orienting device. You know, it reminds you that you're small and that your time here is short and it helps you to connect to the things that really matter. And, um, uh, and Kevin, you're knowing you is one of the things that really matters to me. <laughs> so I think, I think it's, um, it's, it's going to be my time to exit. Um, yeah. thank yeah. you. Thank you for this. Well, thank you for your empathy too. And, um, for your interest in making sure we focus on that. I think that's really important. Okay, great. Take care. Okay. Bye. Uh-oh. Paul Sappho, hi. Hi. The regular presenter wasn't available, so I'm jumping in. <laughs> so, Paul, um, do you think that thinking long-term and thinking about these long intervals can become natural? Or is it something that we're going to have to just work at and always be schooled in? <laughs> I, you know, it's a funny thing, um, as, as others have noticed and noted already, that, you know, take the particular event we're in. That it was Larry Brilliant who said, you know, this is the worst pandemic of our lifetimes, and everyone saw it coming. <laughs> and, you know, you, Peter, uh, everybody who is in on this conversation has participated in more exercises on pandemics than they can possibly count over the years. Um, so I think in general, yeah, we've, we've got to work more on the long-term thinking, but the conversation, the thing that spurred this conversation um, is, is actually an example of the failure who was not long-term thinking at all. The failure was, was, was action. Yeah, right. So, so um, that goes to what Peter was saying earlier, that um, there are plenty of scenarios uh, but getting the people in power to listen to them, if, 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 if a scenario failed, it was because of his failure to convince someone that it was important. So how do we, how do we help people appreciate the power of long-term thinking? Is that, is that something that is, um, can you imagine a society hundred years, 200 years from now where that became the norm? Or do you think this is always going to be um, like learning Latin or mathematics? It's going to be a rarefied talent. The talent of looking long term. Yeah. You know, it's, it's think of you know, a couple of us have been in this game for a while, yourself and others. Um, I've been accused of being a futurist with the past. And without a doubt, the whole notion of futures thinking is a lot more common now than it was 20 years ago. So I, I think the long range thinking will come in and become more common. The question is, can we take that and turn it to action? 
And can we get the combination of the long-term look ahead, but also the fine grain of understanding when something really is about to change? And, and in your experience, being in the business for a long time, what have you found to be the best and most helpful thing to make that transition from knowing something to actually doing? What, what's, been uh, most, what's been most helpful in, in the kinds of things that you have been working on? Well, <laughs> you know, that assumes I'm good at it, which um, I don't think I am. Uh, I, I think it's a little bit like this conversation, that what it is is looking for things that don't fit, looking for things that seem out of place, uh, tracking down people who have interesting opinions. I heard about the virus in December because I had a friend in Shanghai uh, and took it forward. But, you know, Kevin, I think you were the one who mentioned the Anayoshe stone in your conversation with Catherine, correct? I don't think so. Okay, I've been listening all morning. It may, it may have actually come up a little earlier, but you've, you've been to Anayoshe. You've seen the tsunami stones. Right. And we all tell each other myths about the future. Um, <laughs> and the, 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 the lesson here is that uh, the current event was not the Onyoshi stone. This was not the failure to put up a tsunami stone to warn people. Um, it's a town just up the road, Omoe. <laughs> so in Onyoshi, if, if I could turn on screen share and I'd pull up a picture from uh, uh, 10 years ago, the stone is there in Aniyoshi. They didn't build below it. The the Tohoku quake came or sent a tsunami up and they put a new stone right where the new one ended. So it was a success story. But if you go up to Omoi, they have they took all of their all their tsunami stones and they put them together in a little park on the edge of town. So they've got like eight tsunami stones. Some go back four centuries. And that they're all at the right elevation. But even though they had eight tsunami stones, they still built the entire town below the stones because they said, it's just not economically reasonable to give up our harbor. And so and I'll, I'll send a picture over to Xander later, but I've got this picture. It shows all the stones standing there and everything below them is absolutely wiped out. That, that's the puzzle I'm trying to figure out is <laughs> we got the warning stones everywhere and nobody seems to pay attention to them. Yeah. So... Um, do you think, again, going back to the question, it's what do you think might help that? What, what is the, the, the one town does it well, the other town didn't do it well. What was the difference between those two? And um, is it something that we can replicate in other places? So that, again, as to your point, we have plenty of warning stones. We have plenty of scenarios. We have plenty of rehearsals some pay attention to and some don't. Is there something we can do to help us collectively pay attention? Well, I, I, have, a, I have a hypothesis, but I want to ask you. you have, you've been in the business of giving advice. What's been your biggest success in this regard? I think I'm going to uh, refer back to what Peter Schwartz was saying when he was asked the same question about that. And he was saying he likes to try and make it seem like the the acceptance of the advice the doing makes you a hero it makes you look good it makes you look smart so you have to kind of the successes have been in framing the action in a way that it seems 
there's a positive. It's not just you're kind of heading off in a disaster, but you're actually doing something else at the same time that's moving forward, that's good, that's great. And so maybe it's kind of like, like you're looking for um, a scenario where it's hard to resist the solution. So maybe with the harbor and the, and the Japanese town trying to build a harbor, maybe the solution was to divert attention away from the harbor. Say the harbor, you know, I don't know, you, 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 the harbor is not going to be a long-term economic thing that you think it is. And there's something else that's even bigger and more economically powerful that we should be focused on. So um, it's having a positive alternative. And I think I think thinking about the future is not just about being responsible, but a lot about being imaginative, about imagining an alternative. And that is maybe, maybe help us, the places I've seen scenarios work with the people I've been working with is when you can kind of imagine something that is kind of more powerful than before. And then going, doing something about that seems like it's hard to resist. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I also think a build on that is we need to give people more options. Um, and we also, the most powerful way we get people to think long-term is with myths. But we have to be very, very careful with the myths we pick um, because they can really screw us up. Um, but now, not to beat an example to death, but that difference between Aniyoshi and Omoe, I, I was absolutely startled uh, when I saw it. And I thought, how stupid those people were in Omoe. But the difference between Aniyoshi and Mo Omoe is Aniyoshi has a much better harbor. But there may be seven houses in Aniyoshi. And the final stretch of road to Aniyoshi is about wide enough for a golf cart. Omoe has a much worse harbor but they had a big, vibrant town with lots of fishing activities. And sure, they got wiped out this time, but they had almost 150 years of productive life and business and commerce until they got wiped out. And so I could easily imagine the mayor of Omoy saying, hey, look, you know, we got wiped out this time, but you know, we'll rebuild. And in the meantime, we'll rebuild with 150 years of profits that we had in between. And of course, now Japan's taking the third approach, which I think is disastrous, is they're armoring the entire coast with these high seawalls that are ugly as hell and really won't work, but they help get bribes to politicians. Yeah. So um, I, 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 I do want to kind of um, take off on your point about increasing options, because I think... Um, I think that is one of the things that helps move ideas of long-term ideas from just the realm of ideas to action is if there are more options, if we can open up those options and have those options be cascading new options down the road. And I think um, oftentimes people kind of reduce these decisions to, to a binary, yes or no, this or that. And when there is probably 10 hidden options that they weren't aware of. And part of, I think, this process that we're involved in and in trying to think about interval, long interval 
events is to understand that there are a lot more options and opportunities and choices and possibilities out there than we think. And part of this process that we go through is to kind of try to illuminate them. Amen. And at at that, I mean, I would, I would just face up to the current problem and I would drag Peter back in here and everybody else who calls themselves a futurist. Uh, I think the, that this, recent event is a demonstration that the whole futurist field has fundamentally failed. You know, here we are at the 50th anniversary of Al Toffler. Our methods are more similar than they're different. And also we failed, we absolutely failed. That people, all those, all those forecasts had no consequence. All it took was the unharmonic convergence of some short-sighted politicians who had their throat around policy to completely unwind all the foresight and all the preparation. And so thinking about what's different in 50 or 100 or 500 years, I think the, the fundamental challenge is how do we inoculate civilization against human folly? <laughs> and do you have any suggestions? What's your, what's your, what's your, what's your- Way what... above my pay grade, Kevin. I, <laughs> I look at you, uh, you're the one who wrote out of control. I mean, uh... seriously, what would you do? How do you inoculate against human folly? Well, you know, I mean, in a certain sense, I think that's what civilization is. It's it's all these interacting parts and people who are, you know, uh, monitoring each other, trying to, um, I mean, we're far more embedded and far more social than we were a thousand years ago. And um, that's, and there's far less things that, that we have to think about individually because other people are thinking about them. Um, Denny Hills, who had been on a little bit later, was marveling the fact that um, one of the things this shows us is that how how unessential most of us are. Um, that we, 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 we can kind of keep things going, at least on idle, with um, far fewer people than we could have a thousand years ago um, because um, we've reduced the number of, of um, things that we have to think about and... Um, that extra time is meant into kind of like reducing stupid stuff in general. So, so I don't, I mean, I, I think the kinds of things that we're all interested in, um, institutions to think long-term institutions to help with equity uh, institutions in, that includes government, um, to think globally because we have global problems. All these things I think will help us reduce that um, general stupidity that is a natural human character. Um, we have, you know, a b 8 billion people trying to make something happen. I think we have a better chance of doing it than, um, than a thousand years ago. And I don't think there's any silver bullet. I think it's just continuing to do what civilization has been doing. So what about toxic myths? Um, we're yeah. coming up on the 20th anniversary of the Y2K event. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was a reminder that it wasn't just our software that had a bug in it. Uh, operating systems for cultures are called religions. Yeah. And Christianity had a, right. its own Y2K bug. Right. And it's also playing out in the presence of some yeah. people who are absolutely convinced that the apocalypse is right. upon us. Right. Um, it's it's a case of a myth gone bad. It How is. do we inoculate against those, Kevin? 
Yeah, it's it's very very, very hard. I mean, the, the way I would you know, Christianity's had one scenario, and which is that the world's going to end tomorrow. And for two thousand years, it's been the same scenario. It's going to end tomorrow. And for two thousand years, they've been wrong. And so like it's like, well, it's time to have another, at least a second scenario. So I think. Um, well, we're, we're, I mean, the inoculation is that there's fewer, um, you know, there's, uh, uh, I think we want to have the rise of science continue. That has been a very slow rise, but I think the, the more so is, it's is, embedded. Kevin, is science a more dangerous religion than religion? <laughs> I don't think so. No. I, I, there's certainly, science has certainly got things wrong. But the the point about it is that it will it's it will self correct over time, and um, you know it's kind of like well, I don't know who it said, but it's like you know yes, there's science is a terrible thing, but compare you know it's better than the alternatives, and so that's sort of um, uh, where we are. It's it's not perfect, but yeah, I think as I was talking with Catherine, I think we're speeding up our society so that we have problems we're going a little faster than science can go and what i look forward to and what i think is worth spending some energy and money on is trying to evolve science is is is, is to continue to evolve the scientific method which is not static and it's been changing and it has continued to change and it will change in more in the next 50 years and part of that i think so, is also so hold you right there yeah. it seems like the difference between science and religion science mm -hmm. has its problems and its egos um and the like, but science has built-in error correction. Yeah. And dogma, if, if dogma yeah. turns up in science, everybody gleefully tears it apart. Maybe the problem isn't more science, but how do we fix religion? How do we get rid of that dogma thing? <laughs> yeah. You're kind of an expert in religion. How would you do yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I think what we need is sort of an, uh, other views of the big picture, other views of creation, other views of the story that's bigger than ourselves, the big story that are more science-based. And so, so I don't think you can kind of like eliminate religion, but I think you could supplant it. I think you, I mean, the established religions, I think you could make up a better religion with a bigger well, God. I mean, it was Nietzsche who said nearly 2000 years and no new God. We're definitely way overdue <laughs> for a major new religion. Um, you know, you, you do have the right sort of facial hair to be a prophet. <laughs> yeah, right. um, what, what prophet, would be yeah, your new right. religion, Kevin? Yeah, no, I, I think um, I, I think we are at a point where um, we need a, um, a big story that's talking about why we're here, where we're we going. We're all in a race to make the next best thing, but where does that take us? And I think the fact that we don't have answers on a large scale to the people who are involved, like myself, in making these things, who are the technologists and the scientists, I think that is, I think that does hurt us um, in these times when things move faster than we can seem to even observe. So them. I got to cut you off, Kevin, because yeah. I got two minutes to ask you a last question. Okay. Um, humans seem to, we, we, especially in a young country like America, we seem to organize well when we have a clear threat or a clear opportunity. When the U.S. gets in trouble is when things are in the middle. Um, we get unequivocal evidence of intelligent life in the universe and the prospect 
that it might be in touch with us. Is that a good thing or a bad thing for humanity? Does it make us think long-term or do we yeah. give up the ghost? I think it's the greatest thing that could possibly happen. And, and by the way, to subvert your question a little bit, I don't think we have to wait for contact with ET because we are manufacturing artificial aliens on this planet right now. We are going to make artificial aliens, AIs and stuff, that will do almost everything <laughs> that contacting ET would do. I agree. You know, it's the old joke that, you know, you turned on UNIVAC in 1958 and said, someone, let's ask it a question. You know, what to ask? Well, obviously, the question is, is there a God? Joseph Campbell tells this story. So they put the punch card in with the question and the lights were and the machine runs along and it spits out the answer and it says, there is one now. <laughs> but a God that we invent is not going to be as much fun as uh, as alien life that comes in from elsewhere. My you, 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 you're right. I, I would much prefer to be contacted and taken up into a spaceship by UFOs in ET than I would confronting, um, you know, R2-D2. So, um, and I'll add to that. So I, I, I'm allegedly a forecaster. My forecast is if we get unequivocal evidence of intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, one third of civilization um, will will want to conquer it. One third of civilization will want to convert it, and one third of civilization will want to sell it something, and we'll all be happy. And which which third are you in? <laughs> it stumps me. I have no idea. I'm just a bystander. I'm just a forecaster. Paul, it has really been wonderful. <laughs> Talking to you. Thank you for like being involved. We're both getting the hook. All right. <laughs> Good. Where is Tiffany? Tiffany, I've been dying to ask you a question. What have you been dying? I've been so enjoying listening to you. And you, you are. I mean, so I'm gonna skip the. We've both known each other since you were in grade school thing, um, but. Of all your amazing qualities, you were so prescient. How did you guess baking before everybody else? <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> I have to tell you, out of all the things I'm doing right now, I mean, sending newsletters with my brother, Dr. Jordan Slane's updates, but the baking every Friday with people from all over the world has been the most, the best ritual to keep me grounded during this period. It's been, it's been fantastic. I enjoy all the listeners to come bake with me on Friday. <laughs> Yeah, no, and I mean, everything I see on the web, you know, I have another friend who says, I can't stop. I can't help but bake. I don't have anyone to give it to. And I, I wrote him a note back. I said, clearly blame Tiffany. So. <laughs> well, listen, I hope that, you know, the baking and then the unplugging one day a week, which, oh my gosh, during Good this period. Good luck with that. No, I'm t people are like, can you unplug during the pandemic? Not only can I, but, you know, Ken and I and the girls, it has been so important in this period so we've done it for 10 years it's been very important and then during the pandemic when there's such a blur right now but about time and to have the weekend with friday night and have a day off the network we know all the news out there we just need to stay inside and have a day to be together without the screens and actually reflect which is what the long now is all about which i do my, my best thinking on saturday 
And uh, I just feel like it's given me perspective and I think it's good for my health. I mean, I'm sure it's good for my immunity to not get the cortisol levels every second from the news. Um, but the baking and then taking a full day off the screens for a texture bot, I highly recommend right now. Yeah, well, you know, hearing you say that, because you're, you're up here flying at about 50,000 feet and you've got the lifestyle and the rest of us are bumping down in the clouds and the, the wind shear at, at 28,000 feet. So like in my life, I, uh, I, I think this pandemic is absolutely unique. It's the first pandemic we've had where a whole bunch of people have been trapped at home next to the one place they normally never are, their desk. And they have a keyboard and a screen within arm's reach. And it is purely the devil's workshop. The, and so it, to, ironically, it is harder to disconnect now than it was before the virus hit. Am I wrong? I agree, but that's why I feel like um, a screw out of equation for a day where it's not on the table, they shut down and we put them in separate space has been where I feel like I get perspective on this situation. I mean, I've always loved, I mean, I have to do a little, I've always, and we've known each other for a long time and I always love your long-term thinking, but how, how is it that we've become a society that doesn't create space or value reflection or perspective? And I think that's why the long now started, but how do we carve out time, especially right now when it's such an extraordinary moment and I feel like it'll be such a missed opportunity if we don't actually write by hand some of our thoughts. I mean, how are we going to have a record? I, I've been watching documentaries with Ken about the Spanish flu, and my favorite parts are the journal entries, the written journal entries. What are you thinking? What are you most scared about? What are you most hopeful about? What, what's going on? And I don't feel, I mean, I would actually love to ask you, what do you think the best thing that can come from this in addition to what you're most scared about? Well, I'm just going to endorse your comment about writing because, you know, here's my notebook. And, and actually, it worked out very conveniently when I was talking to Kevin. I was able to pull down my journal from 2016 with my notes from Omoi in Japan. Um, and for me, at least, you're right that writing slows the monkey mind down uh, and, and also captures interesting stuff. But, you know, come on, this is Silicon Valley. The, the answer, if I you know, went downtown here, the answer would be, you know, well, how do you get, how do you get solitude and how do you disconnect? And someone would say, well, there's an app for that. Oh, yeah. Don't get me started on that. I don't want one more app to tell me to get off the screen because even the screen time drives me crazy. The screen time monitor on your phone because it never says what you're doing on there. So actually right now, you know, the screens are bringing amazing connection and as well as a lot of stress. So I think the big question is, you know, when do the screens give back to you and when do they take away from your energy? Ask those questions all the time. Ooh. And then, you know, when are they sustaining and when are they depleting? And I think we all know what those are if we just start thinking about them that way. I love that phrase. I think that is the haiku of the day. When does a screen give back and when does it take away? Um, that is that is just brilliant. I mean, it reminds me of the old notion of photographs stealing the soul of a person. Wow, I read that in Susan Sontag on photography, and that made the most profound effect. I'm so glad you brought that up, because I've thought about that with everyone documenting so much. How much is it draining? Yes. Um, I would love to ask you something. 
Um, in addition to no, what? I'm the one asking the question. No, sorry. Okay, go ahead. Are we allowed to do this? Can we go back and forth? <laughs> yeah, you can do anything you want. <laughs> Excellent. I have power. Um, Paul Sappho, what do you think the best thing that can come from this situation? Because I am a believe. I love all the conversation today about we need courage, we need imagination. What do you imagine the best that could come out of that? Because if we can project that, perhaps we'll get there. But I'm curious what you're thinking about. So you mean this conversation or the present moment? <laughs> the pandemic, the present. Oh, okay. That's easy. Um, first of all, <laughs> the, uh, it, it, uh, you know, it drives me nuts. A hundred years ago, people used to joke that we fought wars in order to teach our children geography. And then we stopped teaching them geography because most kids in the United States still don't know where Afghanistan or Iran are. Um, I, I think this virus pandemic is an opportunity to teach our children mathematics, but near as I can tell, nobody's learning it. This was not. This is not an exponential curve. It's a it's a logistics curve, and also um, the the math here that applies is not exponentials. It's power laws, and people aren't learning that yet. So the pointer is, this is the first of pandemics to come, as others have noted. And I think, despite the horror that has happened, despite the tragic loss of life, um, that we're going to look at this pandemic the way we looked at the 89 earthquake in San Francisco and recognize that it was the pretty big one. It wasn't the big one in terms of virus uh, lethality, as your brother and your father would note. It was, I mean, it was a political, it's more a political pandemic in terms of the idiotic response. But the, the highest thing that can come out of this is if we finally take public health seriously, you know, as you well know, being in a medical family, public health was the ugly child and the cool kids were the people coming up with new cancer treatments and the like. And the, so let me pose as a question for you. My hypothesis is, the best thing that will come out of this is we're going to take public health seriously now. I love that. I mean, yeah, I come from a family of doctors and my brother just texted me. He's volunteering in a ward in Queens right now. And, and I asked him the same question that I asked you. So I'm making a movie about all of this right now. Um, what are you most scared of? And he's saying you know, that people are going to forget this. And he said the most hopeful is is the healthcare valuing our own healthcare and the healthcare system and investing and in knowing that it all comes down to that, and how do we value that as a society and and value the infrastructure um, and actually as Esther Dyson was um, saying earlier I mean I love where can telemedicine be really helpful right now where do we need to be in person and where can we let the data and be really helpful. Um, but yeah, the health, the healthcare infrastructure needs some serious rethinking and let this be the crisis that shakes us awake into be thinking really big long-term thinking about how to fix the system and how to create more international coordination. I mean, that, that part is just driving me batty right now is that, well, the lack of leadership from our own president, of course, but just um, my hope is that we're going to come together because how exciting to come together to solve a, one problem. And we've been waiting for this moment for us to all come together on one problem. So I want to ask you a look ahead question that, uh, you know, forecasters like me and Peter, we're, we're parasites that we rely on 
people like you who instinctively are right up at the edge to to point us to things. And for example, you know, I, I realize you were only five years old when you started it, but I think about um, the Webbies in 1996. I mean, the 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 web was just just barely reliable at that point when you started the Webby Awards, and it was such a marvelous way to start looking at things. And you really had the right instinct. And then you got into documentary filmmaking, and now you're—I mean, you know, the, the whole idea of of cloud documentaries and the like was another one of your innovations. I mean, people like Peter and I, we could make a living just, you know, borrowing your ideas and talking to them about them. What's your hunch? Of, yeah, yeah. Well, but here's the question. What What's that next thing over the horizon that is kind of just tickling the back of your neck saying, hmm. Yeah. And it's not pastries. No. Well, I mean, I do think, um, and, you know, Kevin was talking about it. They were talking about it earlier, is the need to have rituals to slow down. And this idea of, you know, disconnecting one day a week is thousands of years old. It was a religious idea. I am not a religious person, so I'm divorcing it from religion and saying, here's this incredible idea of a day of rest. And I really, I wrote this book 24 six because I was like, the world needs, we're so addicted. We're so on our screens. And as Kevin also said, it's very powerful. It's an incredible tool. I love technology, but we must disconnect from the network regularly to gain perspective. And we have lost perspective and I want us to value perspective again. So creating rituals where we are disconnecting from the network so we can think so we can have perspective and reflection and do long-term thinking, I hope is what we're gonna see coming. And also, um, I hope that, you know, the web really accelerated in the last month during this pandemic. It became a lot more human to me. I don't know if you feel that way too, but all the Zoom calls, and although I wish the eye contact would match the screen and my camera, which I, that's another thing. I can't wait for someone in. Danny Hillis, um, <laughs> all credit to Danny Hillis. He demonstrated a screen. This must have been 15 years ago when he was still Applied Minds, and they had the camera right in the center, so you didn't have the parallax, and nobody has taken him up on it. Instead, he's doing this dumb clock thing. You know, he should have done that screen. It would have been better that for That would have been huge. But I think the other thing I'd say is what I hope is that people are going to appreciate being in person again. I mean, I see this even with my daughters who are just so craving. They're on screens all the time right now because they're homeschooling. They're doing social stuff on screens. And our youngest daughter, Bloom, was like, I I'm going to go for a distance walk with my friend. And to crave and appreciate being present is um, I hope we're gonna, you know, the web becomes more human. We learn how it's important to disconnect from it. And also that when we're with people, we don't have our phones out like everyone does. And we're actually truly with people. And as Esther oh, but, was saying- Okay, oh, let me stop you right there. You said disconnect, we don't have our phones out. But if we have our phones with us, even if we're ignoring it, even if we have the ringer off, you know we're still connected because, you know, the way I look at it, once upon a time, you think about a bear walking in the woods, minding its own business, and suddenly it feels a stinging pain in its butt, and it falls over unconscious. And when it wakes up, it's got a radio collar around its neck and a hangover. Well, the only reason marketeers aren't 
shooting darts in our butt is that we put the collar on ourselves. It's called a cell phone. So the irony, you could be sitting there meditating completely disconnected, but if your phone's on, you're still connected. Absolutely. And even seeing somebody else's phone off, you're going to be less present. So how do you create little moments throughout your day during the week? And would I recommend a full day without it to just feel liberated by disconnecting? I think that that's so important. I think that you can almost only think as far as the screen is. <laughs> Remove the screen and you'll be able to think much long term and much wider, like do wider term thinking without the screen there. And you're one of my favorite minds about this. I mean, this whole conversation, today, the whole list, um, I think you all create a lot of um, distance and space in your thinking. And I think the screens are fantastic and we're so connected. And But I, we should also say that half the world isn't connected right now. And that like sounded like some of my some of some screen some of my best friends are screened, um, <laughs> but you know the other thing is listening to you. I realize we got to tell all those people wearing tinfoil hats that the tinfoils are really good idea, but they're instead of putting on their hats, they should make a bag out of it and put their phones in it, so it serves as a Faraday cage to disconnect. <laughs> oh my gosh, tons of ideas just rolling out. So I have a media question for you. Okay. You have done some really marvelous documentaries. And hidden in that is you've really been pushing the edge of, of, of video as, as a language. And, you know, we're seeing this burst of video coming up now. <laughs> some good, quite, some quite not so good. Um, how does this current environment and all these new people being introduced to video via Zoom and everything else and starting to record and do things. How is that going to change video as a medium in the years to come? Mm, that's a great question. Well, it's exciting how many people have learned to use video in the last month, like even video conferencing and recording. And you see, you know, we have this incredible constraint right now, which is we can't leave the house and we want to communicate and we want to receive information. So I felt like it really accelerated distance learning. It accelerated people documenting how they're feeling. And I have seen some, I mean, yes, there's been some not great ones, but there's been some really creative and hilarious things that have been sent my way because of the creative constraint. So I think that, you know, you know that saying, um, you know, if a hammer, you know, basically if you understand- Hammer and nail. Yeah, hammer and nail. Basically, if you really understand how to tell a story. That is so powerful. As Xander said early on, it's like storytelling is like the original technology. So if we can use these tools to connect to our empathy, our courage, our humanity, and share the stories now, and, and make it more human, because you know, literally a month ago, I just did this show called Dear Human in New York, and it was my concerns about the web, that it was making us less than human. It was bringing, it was highlighting the weaknesses of humanity, not our strengths. And in this moment, if we can use video and use the web to rise the best parts of humanity, empathy, courage, perspective, that would be so incredible. So I feel like I have seen this moment, like a yeah. two months ago. So, this is good, but we've, we've got three minutes left before I depart. Oh, and I don't want to depart. So I have a bit. question uh, that I'm just dying to hear the answer to. Oh my gosh. What is the story that has occurred to you? What's the newest story that's occurred to you that you most want to tell in the months to come? Mm. 
That's a great question. So I'm working on this short film right now about the situation and I'm a cloud film is what I call them. And I've been asking people all over the world to t answer three questions to me. What are you most scared about? And to be as raw as possible, what are you most hopeful for humanity about, which I asked you. And then the other one is, um, what are the beautiful random acts of kindness that you've seen? Because I think seeing them all together would be really powerful. Like even in, I'm in Mill Valley and every night at 8 p.m. we're howling like coyotes in honor of the healthcare workers. And I think seeing all of those things together, our, okay. our fears, our hope. Got it. I'm gonna stop you because I'm gonna make you answer one more thing. <laughs> um, answer your three questions. What are you most scared about? What are you most helpful about? And what's the most amazing random thing you've seen? I'm most scared because my brother just flew to Queens to volunteer in a fever clinic and I'm scared for him and I love that he's doing it. I'm scared that he's going to get sick. Um, I'm most hopeful because I think this is an opportunity if we make it that this is an extraordinary moment in human history and how can we rise up and really think about how we want to take care of the planet differently and how we want to take care of each other and ourselves differently. And then the random acts of kindness. Um, I just saw footage of all these doctors entering different cities and people just clapping for them. And I love that sense that crisis brings out our best instincts. Well, and also with doctors, they, as, as you know, I have some involvement in a related space. And there's a motto in, in the unit I'm part of is you don't rise to occasion you don't rise to an occasion you sink to the level of your training and that what we're seeing is that doctors are both rising to the occasion but above all they're falling back on their level of training and thank god for that and my time is up so such a pleasure i just loved having this time with you and it's so great to talk with you and see you good well i'm going to sit back and listen to you continue the conversation oh great great bye paul and now I get to introduce David Engelman, who I call a brother from another mother. <laughs> hey, man. How are you, Tiffany? <laughs> I'm so Good happy to see, to see you. I'm happy Thank to see you. you. Thank um, you. Yeah, I, I am so curious what you're thinking about right now. Um, I feel like it's such a moment to um, pause and think about those big questions. So I guess I would I just want to ask you, what are you most scared about right now? Ah, uh, well, uh, there's the obvious things about the um, health of loved ones. And then, um, you know, the, I don't know if this counts as scared, but I'm, uh, I'm really interested in what's going to happen in terms of the societal impacts. I know this is what we're all thinking a lot about. Um, and it's going to, you know, everybody was hoping, especially at the beginning, that this was going to be fast and maybe we'd have to do a quarantine and then it would be over. But it looks like there may be really long-term consequences. Impossible to know exactly what those are. Um, but in terms of businesses, in terms of, you know, what's going to happen in the handshake? Are we ever going to shake hands again? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's time to get rid of that. Um, yeah. But I don't want, I don't I, want uh, to get rid of the hug. I mean, I've been, I'm already over. I never, the handshake was never sanitary. It's the hug. I will be very sad if the hug goes away. Agreed. Let me ask you this. I was wondering, um, in terms of the films that you make, the wonderful films that you make, so you're thinking about doing stuff now. I just heard you mentioning with Paul, but 
What do you think you'll be making in five years or 10 years from now? Hmm. I'm always interested in the intersection of technology and humanity. So we were working on a series before the pandemic and we're still going to do it and it'll just have a slightly different filter because of what just happened. But I'm always really interested in that intersection. Um, yeah. And right now I think, and I do think it's very exciting because you know, even this long conversation is being broadcast all over the world. I love seeing organizations right now that are scaling. And I think there's so many more people doing videos right now. So there's so many more perspectives and storytelling we're going to hear. So that's interesting to me. Can yeah. I ask you my, my second question? Sure, sure. What do you think the best thing that can come out of um, this experience mm. for society would be? Um, I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of, in terms of brain plasticity, like the flexibility of the brain. And, you know, the fact is what brains are trying to do is make an internal model of the world. So they know how to operate within that model. And we've all gotten ourselves over the years into this sort of zombie like state of thinking and performing in this world that we know. And what's happening now is everything's changed. Our internal models don't work anymore. And as a result, it forces a lot of creativity. And I've been seeing acts of creativity everywhere. I know we've been talking, other people have been talking about acts of kindness and charity, and that's amazing to see as well. But what's really cool is to see people breaking their models and thinking, okay, that doesn't work. That doesn't allow me to predict the future. Right. How can I do something else? Um, yeah. Did you see this yeah, video with all these? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, just, you know, just as a dumb example, but like all these Italians in the, they were in an apartment complex up on the fifth floor or something, and they were playing bingo across the courtyard where all the neighbors are doing things with each other. Or, or a friend yeah. of mine who loves to play tennis every day, all the courts are closed here. So she got on Airbnb and looked at big houses with tennis courts and offered to Airbnb just the tennis courts. So she just drives over and uses the tennis courts. Just stuff like that. There's people thinking in new ways. It's really great. Well, I think that, that there's an expression, I mean, in filmmaking, you know, creativity, constraints breed creativity. And we're under so many constraints right now that I'm with you. It's so, I feel like I've seen more creative things in the last month that have delighted me and surprised me and, and the way people are doing business and the way they're creating things. And I, I just, I, to me, the best parts of humanity, along with the very scary situation, but I do feel like people are being incredibly creative. It's like this renaissance with the constraint of having to um, stay at home or be safe. So I'm with you. I think I think it's it's incredible. I, it's I mean, yeah. the whole experience. You know, I have such a mix of feelings where like I'm so frustrated with our president and the way he's not managing the situation. And yet the people are rising and figuring things out in his, in the lack of leadership, other people are rising and different kinds of leaders are emerging and creativity. And, you know, I, I heard this great thing too, was like the healthcare workers are saving our lives and the artists are saving our souls. And every day I have laughed at something someone sent me or paused and really thought about something someone posted and social media is finally being used in, I think the best way possible. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. Can nice. I ask you a question about, um, you know, in a lot of ways, this is accelerated um, using data from our phones. And, you know, my brother really mm -hmm. talks about this a lot or telemedicine. And I would love to hear your thoughts 
um, being a neuroscientist, and I know you work so much on data and sensors. So what do you think, what do, what do you think in the future this is all going to accelerate on how we're interacting with healthcare or even neuroscience? Yeah, so you may know that back in 2010, I wrote a book called Why the Net Matters. And I made this argument that um, telepresence is going to be one of the main things that can save us as a civilization when the next epidemic hits, which it will with 100% certainty. Um, you know, the one thing that we have different now from, actually, we have a lot of things different from 1918. We have much better medicine for one. But the other main thing that's going to save us is the ability to be telepresent. And um, in my talks and in the book in 2010, I really encouraged businesses to have a telepresence work from home plan um, and to really practice that sort of thing. Um, but I don't know that anyone actually did that or practiced a plan on it. So now everyone's getting forced into doing it. But I think what everybody's discovering, all businesses, is that there are lots of bumps along the road. But in the end, it's not that hard to, to make it work, to be telepresent. Now, for example, I, I have a company, Sensory, and we're completely telepresent now, and, and it's working. So I think what's going to happen, of course, is major shifts in real estate. And, um, you know, in the mm -hmm. same way that the advent of Amazon, you know, hurt retail stores, I think that <clears throat> this practice of working from home is probably going to hurt commercial, uh, you know, like um, office real estate into the future. Yeah, I think that in the same line of people appreciating more when they're together, just as humans, just in relationships, that really wow. asks the question of when do I need to see a doctor in person? And when could this be done remotely? Like, how can we take care of the things that don't need to be physically in the same place? And so we have all the data we need. So when we have that in-person connection, like I know there's a doctor I see that's on her screen when she's with me because she's putting so much data. And I wish that when we were together, that was all taken care of and we were just really having that in-person connection. So I think really looking at when does the data and being on the net help us get to the place so when we are in person, we're making the best use of that. Um, I think, uh, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say one of the main things that is really critical to get down is telemedicine. And that has traditionally been developed for the purpose of people in, in rural areas um, to get to, you know, to get medical care. But I think yeah. the really important part about it is figuring this out for urban centers where everybody, as soon as they get a cough or something, they're worried and they come flocking into the hospital. This yeah. is where it's the most important. And the cool part is I think this is, you know, as horrific as this particular epidemic is, it might just be a practice run, a dry run for whatever the next thing is. And, and thank goodness we're getting that practice. So that will really be up to speed. And all the elements of Silicon Valley that have gotten a lot of criticism about telepresence and telemedicine and so on, I think are, are now going to be appreciated maybe in a different way. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, as my, you know, I always have loved experimenting with technology, but definitely was starting to feel like it was bringing out the worst. And suddenly I'm like, oh, we're, f I mean, the great thing about the web, and since you've been thinking about it for so long too now, is that it is a great equalizer. I feel like, you know, as McLuhan said, it's just an extension of us and, you know, brings out the best and the worst. And right now, if we can just steer the, you know, manage the way that it's being used to bring out the best and to collaborate in the best way. And 
No, I've been thinking a lot about uh, how many people are not on the web right now, and even almost 30% of New York City. And that's going to be, I hope, the big thing we're going to focus on is getting everyone connected that, that wants to be or that should be um, so that they can benefit from things like telemedicine. Um, yeah. 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 So I'm going to ask you, Tiffany, the same question that Paul just asked you, which is, of course, uh, about the digital Sabbath, whether... So, so you mentioned to Paul that you feel like that still makes good sense in this period of time, but I, I've wondered Absolutely. whether you think there are circumstances. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I, it's even more valuable to us as a family. Like, you know, we have a landline. If anyone really needed to reach us for healthcare reasons, Jordan and my family would know what to do. Um, but yeah. other than that, we know the news. It's super stressful. We know we're supposed to stay inside, and we are. And to have a day where we. Um, turn off the screen, you know, all the kids, we're all on screen so much more for wonderful things like connecting and homeschooling and working out and social, everything. I am so exhausted at the end of every day right now. I just feel like emotionally spent doing all these Zoom calls because they take a lot more energy out of you. So to have a Friday, we set the table, we make a beautiful meal, all the screens are off. We connect in a completely different way than when the screens are around. And then to have a Saturday where reading in a focused way, journaling, napping, uh, playing board games, it's a special day because actually during the week, we're all off in our own little worlds right now um, on our screens. And it's the one day that we like reconnect. I have found these tech Shabbats a thousand times more valuable for like my health because I'm sleeping so well on Friday night. I just feel like I get perspective, which I think I'm losing during the week because it's like so much coming at me all the time. So uh, I, I have to say, I think it's, it's lasted for 3000 years for a reason, this concept of a day of rest. And what does that mean today? And what does that mean in a pandemic? Um, is that you go off the screens and be with your family in an authentic way, be with yourself in an authentic way. If you're not married or with kids, just take a moment to process. There's a lot going on and it would be a missed opportunity if we don't put our pen to paper. And I literally mean paper to get down some of our thoughts right now in a different way. It's so good to put your mind in a different way. And that's really what this is about. Yeah. What have, what have you seen in terms of uh, in terms of your neighbors? Um, because this is something I you know I heard when you were talking with Paul before that you were asking about random acts of kindness and what you're yeah. seeing. And for for me, I immediately thought the most amazing thing that's going on is the way we've all shifted from our backyards to our front yards. So now oh, every time I go walking, which is several times a day. Everyone's people have set their chairs up on their front lawn. Everyone, I love that. You know, I love that. Yeah. Wait, that's so beautiful. We've moved from our backyards to our front yards, and our backyards were private with fences, and our front yards were so happy to see people. And I, you know, I'm wearing yeah. that mask, and I'm trying to convey a lot of emotion in my eyes. But um, I don't know if you know this um, artist. Um, I made this film called The Adaptable Mind, and it featured this artist during the mm -hmm. Ebola epidemic who put the pictures of the healthcare workers on their their gowns so people could see their faces. And there is wow. a woman who is revitalizing this whole program actually at Stanford where you are. Um, but I love the idea earlier about, you know, putting a smile on the mask because, you know, we all really need to be wearing masks now. And it's so hard to, I, when I go to the store with my mask, I just feel like I can't connect with them that I'm smiling. And that's so important. I'm so grateful for all the people yeah. working in grocery stores and like I, but I think I think what you just said is so beautiful. Moving from the backyard to the front door, from the front door, because we lost that sense of community and 
neighbors. I mean, we're seeing people because people can't go. We're flying around all over the world. And I'm really going to think twice. I wonder if you are actually, I'd love to know. Because, you know, Ken and I travel a lot for work and I'm really going to rethink that. Why are we traveling all the way across the world all the time? Do we need to be doing that? I mean, are you thinking about that after this is over? Yeah, you know, I'm a frequent flyer like you guys are, and I'm constantly going places and giving talks. Um, what's already been happening during this is I'm giving more and more online talks. I don't actually know if they're as effective yeah. because all it takes is a single ding before somebody's like, you know, I want to listen to the speaker, but I'm going to check that email. <laughs> so I don't, I don't actually know, but it is pretty wonderful to not have to travel around and get on airplanes. I know it is hard though. I wonder if you feel this way, but like the energy of a room, I mean, nothing can replace that. That's why like going to a movie theater, Ken and I go every Saturday or we did to a movie theater, nothing replaces just being in a room with a whole bunch of people and hearing them sigh or clap or laugh. And when I'm giving these Zoom talks, I just, ugh, I miss that reaction or anything. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, yeah. Ken had this great idea that, you know, there could be different levels of like clapping or responses from the Zoom audiences, like different icons. Oh. You know, because I just feel like you're just like sometimes talking to a void. I mean, fortunately, I'm talking to you right now, but I hope whoever is creating these tools right now, like Zoom, hope you're listening. But give us more options to express responses as we're listening to speakers because we need it. We need it. <laughs> That's a good call. You know, by the way, I was thinking about Ken, uh, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know that, yeah, that's Tiffany's husband who does who, who does all kinds of interesting things. But one of the things he's been into is, you know, robotics and how you pick things up and do them yeah. automatically. And this was actually one of the this was actually one of the points of my argument back in 2010 is that we need to put a lot more effort into telerobotics yeah. and being able to control things, even if it's a human operator, being able to control from a distance or just having them do the things on their own. Um, I'm curious. If yeah, I'm Ken so glad. Like yeah. So uh, my husband is Ken Goldberg. And he runs a robotics lab at UC Berkeley. He does a lot of work factories, actually warehouses, you know, how to pick things up so it would save um, people from potentially getting, I mean, his work has been for a long time doing, but of course it would really help people right now in warehouses so that the robot would pick up, identify the object, pick it up, put it in the box to remove the human element there. So I think in robotics and what he's always talking about is how do you remove things that humans don't need to do so you can have things that humans do need to do more and yeah. use our human ability like creativity and innovation and empathy and all those things. So it's been really exciting to hear Ken um, in his meeting right now because we hear everything that's going on in the house. I'm in the living room. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that's actually been really interesting for us as a family just to be listening and seeing really what our days look like every day. Um, but yeah, his, yeah, I think robotics is really interesting right now. Um, you know, I'm even thinking of people bringing deliveries and yeah, drone deliveries make sense right now and you don't want them to risk their lives to deliver something to your house. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting yeah. time for sure. Yeah, it's oh, been fascinating. Have, oh, go ahead. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, do we have to, are we, no, we have a few more no, minutes. No, we have think, a couple yeah? more minutes. So let's get to our big, yeah. like, woo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> our big concluding um, thoughts right. here. Uh, all right. Well, uh, what are you, yeah, what are you feeling optimistic about? I feel incredibly connected to people. I mean, even that we're having this conversation, I've connected to more interesting people and new people just 
through these kind of Zoom conversations. And then I feel really connected to my family in a different way. We, Ken and I did travel a lot and it's really uh, feels beautiful and important to just be sheltering in place and what that means. I just turned 50 last week and I was, <laughs> thank you. I've always looked forward to turning 50. Um, and my father used to say, when you turn 50, you don't have to take shit anymore. So I was, that was like a goal, 50. Um, but, <laughs> but I think that uh, I, I feel like it has really helped us prioritize what's important. You know, the reason I started doing tech Shabbats in the first place is that I lost my father to brain cancer and Ken's and my daughter was born within days. And it was one of those moments where I felt like life was grabbing me by the shoulders and saying, focus on what's important. And I, that, that series of events, dramatic events made me change the way I lived. And I feel like this moment that we're in is the earth and life grabbing us all by the shoulders and saying, focus on what's important. Look at, at the way you're living. And so I'm hopeful that this very intense, painful experience for a lot of people that are losing people in their family that they love, and all of us are thinking about how to live differently, what's important, what matters. I think I'm hopeful that real behavioral change can come out of this very dramatic moment we're in. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah, I think so. We're, we're um, you know, I mentioned earlier this thing about brain plasticity and the fact that we are being forced to think about new models. And, yes. you know, what happened after the Black Plague in, in Europe was, um, you know, so many lives were lost and jobs were lost and houses were emptied. And, and the result of it was a launch straight into the Renaissance mm. because... I mean, it was for several reasons. You know, one is that there was just more land available and more jobs available and that kind of stuff. But, but also, it you know just forced everybody to think in a new way. And so it may, um, it may be that what comes out of this is a very different kind of society. You know, it may be something stupid like we don't handshake anymore, like we mentioned. But it might be something sort of bigger and better than that in terms of new forms of government and certainly more telepresence and. Telemedicine, telerobotics, yeah. I would love, that's such a beautiful note to end on. I think we should just, I know I'm excited to listen to you and Ping talk, but that is so beautiful. Great. Perhaps the Renaissance is right around the corner. I love that. It was, oh, it's always fun to talk to you. Great, <laughs> you too, Tiffany. All right, take care. I'll talk to you okay. soon. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks, and now it's uh, my pleasure to welcome Ping Fu. So as soon as she comes on here, hey. Hi, David. I just hey. created a smiley mask after hearing <laughs> Tiffany asking for one. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Wait, is that a Snapchat filter or an actual mask? <laughs> it's an actual mask. Wow, yeah. OK. You can Very zip well it. You can zip it. Oh, that's so <laughs> nice. That's a really lovely idea. Yeah. OK, I'm taking it off. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I was thinking of doing, by the way, uh, you know, Tiffany and I were just talking about everyone walking in the neighborhood, everyone walking around. I was thinking, you know, people in masks, plus, by the way, we don't know most of our neighbors, thinking of setting up a big table, six foot long table, and sitting on one end and just putting a note, a, a sign saying, hey, come, come here for conversation. And that way I could meet my neighbors. But if everyone wore masks like that, it would be so inviting. Yes. That's what I'll do. <laughs> that, yes. was the burning, that was the burning my mask. Yes, excellent. So, Ping, here's the question I wanted to ask you. So, 
Um, so you were born in China, in Nanjing, if I remember, yeah? Yes. And, and you've you moved here, I think, in 84, and you've lived, you know, the rest of your life here in the United States. And so my question is, you probably have a really cool perspective on both countries and what's going on and the responses by the people, by the government, stuff like this. What, are you, what do you see with that? That's a good question. I've been tracking this since January when China uh, started to locking down Wuhan and it was right before Chinese New Year. And I do see the difference of, of how China handles it and how uh, the Western country handles the pandemic. And, but the, but the, the bigger question that I have isn't what every government is doing. I think the difference is small. The bigger question I have is, do we really think that we can control uh, birth or death? I think about that question because China also uh, instituted one-child policy in 1979, which has quite social, social and economic impact in society, but it's totally understudied. And with this pandemic, I feel like we human are kind of want to play God to control uh, birth and death rather than putting effort on reducing suffering. What's your mm. view on that? I mean, that's, uh, it's only rarely that governments want to control birth in the way that China did, but everybody's always wanted to control death, right? The from the earliest sorts of religions and writings we have, everyone's been interested in, in that kind of thing. And of course, here in Silicon Valley, there's this big um, longevity movement. Um, and, you know, I, I've been invited to speak at a couple of the events there. What's interesting is most people who are into that are sort of of a particular age where they get to an age and then they really start wanting to control death. Whereas, of course, you know that very young people don't care about that at all. Um, yeah, so, um, but but I would, if you don't mind me pushing on this question, I just, I really do want to know, because you see both worlds so clearly. I mean, if, would you rather be a citizen in China or a citizen in the U.S. now, and why, which government is thinking longer term, more appropriately? Um, just wanted to know your take on that. Uh, that's an interesting question. I think this is probably the very first time in my life I feel it would be safer in China than, than in US. But this is primarily from uh, health and then probably also economic point of view. Uh, mm. And also like I see, certainly I see less suffering in terms of a massive layoff, massive, massive economic impact in China. So, so this is probably the first time that I actually have quite a bit respect uh, in what Chinese government government are doing, you know, I'm not necessarily a friend of them, nor they they were being kind to me. So um, that that's that's mm -hmm. an interesting insight from that. Uh, one of the things what I see since January that the the difference from China and the U.S. is in China it is very cooperative effort like everybody's collaborating with each other when they quarantined wuhan entire country is sending doctors and nurses and then cheering for for their success the, the humanitarian 
effort there was very, very touching. And here I hear just very divided, separate plea for each state and that, that ineffectiveness here is making me very frustrated. Oh yeah. Oh, I agree. Um, what are you, what are you optimistic about going on here in terms of where things are going to go after this is over? I'm quite optimistic about innovation here because U.S. is definitely uh, the source of invention, not just innovation. And most of, um, and that's, that's why I'm from a technology front, but also from a social perspective, I do see people get together, like looking at themselves, their relationship with nature in a much deeper way. So my question back to you is more on a neuroscience point of view, like you working on brain elasticity. What do you think such a worldwide pandemic and also in some way a fear-based uh, approach will do to our brain and what are the negatives and what are the positives? I think the negative right now, I, I've just been put, you know, it's interesting. I've been thinking about this thing that I'm kind of temporarily calling the, the neuroscience of the unprecedented, because for all of us in our lifetimes, this was unprecedented. Even if all of us, um, you know, Ping, you and I are both on the board of the long now, and we think about history a lot, but, you know, nonetheless, this is totally new for us. And so the question is, what does that do to our brains? The funny part is it's never been studied. In fact, I don't even know if there's an obvious way to study it in neuroscience. Nonetheless, I've been thinking a lot about this issue of, of our models of the world and how they get upended. And I think one of the things that's I have noticed during the quarantine, and everybody I talk to has this feeling, is that it's impossible to do long-term thinking while everything's changing. And so I've started thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs in terms of the time domain. So here's what I mean. If you have a good internal model of what's happening and you understand how to do everything in the world, then it's easy enough to think way into the distance. That's like the top of the hierarchy, the top of the pyramid. Everything is taken care of, all your physiologic needs, you know, relationship needs, everything. You're at the top. You can think about the big picture. What kind of company you want to start and why and where that goes, what that means for society and so on. When we're in a time like this, where people are worried about if I don't get that next, you know, Instacart delivery, I actually don't have any food left, that kind of thing, it's very hard to think long term. Um, when our internal models are, are frayed, it's hard to use those to make predictions about the future. So anyway, that's, the, that's what I'm thinking about now from a neuroscience point of view. Um, is is why we're all having such a hard time thinking, you know, about whatever our, our next book or our next big giant project or something. Instead, it's more of a day-to-day -day battle. So take your point on time domain. Um, in the Asian philosophy, that they actually believe that there's a difference between the psychological time and our physical time. And psychological time sure. existed, you know, since human existed and uh, the physical time actually started more like when a train was invented and now we need to all agree on when we're gonna get on the train. Before that, there wasn't clock. We just look at sunrise, sun, sunset. 
So yeah. if you are in your psychological time, which is kind of limitless time, <laughs> and then the Asian philosophy also believes that even our body is transient. Okay, say we live a hundred years, our body is a vessel, but the wisdom is millions of years. So when we were born, we didn't born with an empty brain. We born with a uh, a brain full of good and bad. <laughs> uh, there's really no scientific proof for that, of course. And what would be your take on a view like that? Well, let me just make sure I understand. I mean, <clears throat> the idea that we're born with a brain that already has stuff in it is, of course, totally right. We're not born as blank slates. Um, what's very interesting to me is the blank slate half of things where we drop into the world and we absorb everything around us. But we come to the table with a lot of stuff already pre-programmed essentially by our genetics. Take something like, you know, take something like puberty where, you know, for 13 years, you're not, you, you don't even care about other people's body parts and so on. And then suddenly it becomes the most interesting thing in the world. Why? Because that's pre-programmed uh, to happen. And of course, babies can do all kinds of remarkable things that they don't have time to learn. They just, they, um, you know, whether it's finding a nipple or learning a language or things like that, that is what they're uh, pre-programmed to do. Um, yeah, the interesting part, by the way, if I could just mention one thing about the psychological time issue, our notion of how long time, how, how much time has passed, our notion of that has everything to do with how much memory we lay down and how much clear memory we can draw on. So, so if I say, Hey, Ping, when was it since the last Long Now board meeting? You can say, well, let's see, I was here and there and I did all these. Okay, great. So it was, you know, three months or whatever. But what I find interesting is during this quarantine time, it's very hard to keep track of durations. I all the time I'm thinking, wait, did I do that two days ago? Five days? I don't even remember now. Um, and it's because we, it's so difficult to write down new landmarks in time because everything is the same, the same walls of the house, uh, same things happening. Same staring at a Zoom screen, even even minor landmarks like, oh, I saw this person, then I saw that person, I saw that person. All of that is even hard to keep track of because everybody is just a two by two inch square on, on the computer screen. Right. So let's say this um, physical time in time like this actually doesn't matter because we can't even know which day of the week we are. Let's look to the future a little bit. So in, so we're, in the future, when the biology kind of can edit our DNAs or neuroscience made tools that can live in our blood to contact tracing, tracking ourselves. Um, the technology also make us working with uh, artificial machines. Do you think our brain can live both inside and outside of our body and our brain would naturally working with each other rather than just inside of our head. If I've understood the question, I, I do think so that it's actually very easy for brains to operate just as an example, like, you know, uh, operate a robot across the country it's very easy to do that sort of thing. And, and neuroscientists really just in the last 10 years have done a lot of this where you hook up electrodes into somebody's motor cortex and then that controls, you know, some physical device that's a little far away. Um, this is a very small chunk of what's happening in the world of neurosurgery and neurorobotics, but 
Um, you know, people can control a prosthetic robotic arm, stuff like that. So my, my point of view on this, the hypothesis that I've uh, proposed on this is that anything we can control becomes part of the self. And you actually see that when people lose control of a limb and they can't control part of their limb, they often will feel like that is no longer theirs. They'll say, well, that's, that's not my arm. That's, you know, the nurse must have left it in the bed here. Um, so generally the story is brains are quite good at controlling, um, I, I should say, brains are quite good at controlling this body. And so you think of this as the self, but as brains come to control other things, that'll all become a bigger part of the self. If we look up. Uh, 10,000 years, maybe even 100,000 years ahead, would your brain be able to control mine or mine control yours? That I don't, I don't think so. Um, yeah, I don't think so because essentially what you have is your own mission control center where you can control four limbs and maybe robotic limbs and telepresent limbs. But um, the question is, could my control center take over yours? Now, the interesting part of this is, you know, friendships or marriage or, you know, uh, mentorships or anything is in a sense all about two brains sharing some, some real estate so that both brains have a real representation of the other one. And, you know, if you're married for a long time or you've got an old friend or whatever, you, you can run a simulation of that person pretty, pretty well. And what that means, therefore, is their actions or brain is somehow controlling you uh, in some sense. Yeah. Um, uh, Ping, let me ask you something. The, uh, I, I really liked Tiffany's questions that she asked. What, what are you scared about right now? That's a good question. I haven't been scared of anything, primarily because if, I'm, if I find myself being scared and I keep trying to work myself into the space of love, um, I think in the larger scale, not like right now what I'm scared of. Right now, I'm not really scared of anything. If I die, it's fine. I'll just leave the word to the younger. I think the, in the larger scale, I am afraid of losing my mind because I am coming to 62 this year and um, constantly worried about being in that senior moment. So being a neuroscientist, what are some of your recommendations that we can do when you're aging to expand your brain plasticity, right? That's what you're- Yeah, plasticity, yeah, it's perfect. I mean. The whole thing is about seeking novelty. Uh, what happens is we get into routines and we do the same thing every day. And typically when people retire, you're not this type of person, Ping, but most people when they retire, you know, their lives really shrink and they get fewer and fewer friends and they end up sitting on the couch and watching Jerry Springer. And um, it turns out they're not challenging their brain. So the whole trick with uh, uh, avoiding dementia to the degree that we know how to do it, the best shot you have at it, it's constantly challenging your brain with um, novelty. And so that's actually, that's actually part of my optimism about this very grim time is that we are all being challenged to think in completely new ways. Like, you know, if I thought about, okay, how do I get a jug of milk? My internal model used to say, oh, you just go to that store and you get the milk off the shelf. But now I have to think about, okay, well, now, okay, that store's probably going to be out and, you know, and this store's out of it too. 
and how do supply chains work for milk and the farmers and, and where's it going to break down due to COVID and so on. So it, it forces us to really get out of our typical zombie-like routines. Um, and so anyway, maybe, you know, maybe one of the benefits will be that we discover in 20 years from now, there are fewer people getting dementia because of this happening and they're being forced to rethink everything so much. Well, I guess we are almost out of time. So it would be the last question. <laughs> um, do you see that we can create a tool that would do like brand contact tracing of our body's response? As in, as in who have I been close to? That kind of thing? Uh, well, it could be emotionally, you, you have a fear, you know, fear is near you, or it could be yourself, like you're stressed, you're... Oh, interesting. I mean, memory is the original brain contact tracing, as you're defining it. I mean, that's mm, what memory exactly is. It's a way of physically changing what's going on in here so that you remember, ah, I came in contact with that scary thing or this beautiful thing or whatever. It's exactly that. It's, that's exactly what it's for, uh, memory. And and we're a very uh, we're a very lucky species in that way that we have lots of memories, a whole lifetime worth uh, that tells us, okay, don't do that, but do do that over there. Yeah, yeah. our memory is kind of faulty, right? And and oh. and we also outsource our memory to a lot of things, like a Google. It's a way to outsource uh, maps and spreadsheet is a way to outsource numbers. Um, do you see we, we outsource of our memory to the machines so that it does better than our own memory? Oh, uh, yes. And, and we've been on that path for a long time. So photographs, for example, are, are precisely that. There are, there are 100 ways that, ways that we outsource our memory. And thank goodness, because ex you're exactly right. Our memories are quite lousy. And, um, and even traumatic memories, even really important things are just as drifty as banal memories. So, you know, think, you know, like if you ask somebody exactly what they were doing on September 11th, 2001, um, if you can compare that to an earlier record that they wrote down, it turns out people's memories drift even of really traumatic uh, events. So we, we do that in so many ways. We outsource our memory and, and thank goodness that we do. Um, Ping, we've just got one minute left. So let me just ask you, what are you, um, uh, yeah, what, what are you most hopeful about or what kind of random acts of kindness have you seen? These are Tiffany's questions that I loved. I just wanted to get your take on that. Oh, the, the word kitchen that they have made more than a million food for oh. people who are needed. Yeah, that's, that's one of the very large kindness random kindness that I see it happens in every city. They're cooking for the first line doctors and nurses and also people who are hungry. Oh, great. Okay, Ping, it was wonderful to talk to you. Good uh, talking to you, David. Next. See you guys later. Hi, Danny. Okay. We've been saying that we need to see each other. This is a really great way. Yeah, it's been too long. I, I feel very humbled to be in between two of you with David being the world foremost expert in the brand science and Danny, who I see as the person with the most amazing brand in mind. 
an expert in nothing, though. That's uh, uh, but you're amazing at everything. <laughs> uh, so, hey, uh, can I ask you a question? Yes, absolutely. Do you think that is this the first time the world has faced a problem simultaneously throughout the whole world? Well, how do you compare them to World War One and World War Two? Are they also simultaneously? But maybe not to every individual. In terms of like it touches every human being on Earth, this may be the first time. Yeah, and also we all are facing the same problem. Whereas during wars, people face each other. Each they're each other's problem. Well, I am worried about that. This is a virus, but we're making it an imaginary war. Yes, I think that's a problem. On the I other mean, hand, I, it's not we are making it that. Maybe our politicians are, but I don't feel that, you know, we're not, um, I, I don't feel that people feel that way, that they're against other people. In fact, I think people more feel, they sort of realize, in some sense, they realize the same way that they realized when they saw that picture of the whole earth that there's a lot of other people that are in the same boat they are. Well, I'm not saying that this particular imaginary war is necessarily negative, because in history, we always see that when there is a common enemy, people get together, right? This is seem like the first time the entire Earth identified a common enemy, even though like a virus has existed forever. We live with virus all the time but there was not a political, social togetherness in identify one virus as all as a common enemy of all humanity, so which, which is interesting. Permanently change us because we face for the first time, we've, or at least we've realized we're facing a common enemy before. I think we've done it, we've had a common enemy before, but I don't think it's happened quickly enough or people were aware of it enough I mean, certainly, you know, one can imagine that global warming might have done that, but it's done so slowly. But this causes a lot of people to realize they're sort of in it together in real time in a way that I don't think we've ever been before. Well, in terms of environmental issue, it is also a, like when you talk about global warming or the clean air, clean water, it's also a common enemy. It's just, it's more long-term. So it's not as urgent. And this one is like now that is making people all reacting to it. But I'm hoping like this would make us realize there are many other common enemies that we have for the survival of humanity that is out there so that we will deal with it in a more coherent or collaborative way. In, in a way, we're lucky we're getting to practice on one that is this solvable? Um, yeah, it's like a worldwide rehearsal. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is very much like a worldwide rehearsal. Um, and and actually, it's it's clear to me that, well, I don't know. You might disagree about this, but I think most of the impact is going to be a reaction, um, and that uh, which is great. Um, in the sense that, you know, we have more control over that. 
Um, not to say that there's not a huge impact anyway, but um, certainly if this is nothing, we compare it to the plagues and things like that, but from a biological standpoint, it's nothing like as serious as the plagues where you had, you know, very, or at least so far, you know, we haven't been having, you know, some double digits of the population dying. Well, there's definitely um, the side effect of information, uh, accessible accessibility to information, right? When we had a plague, we don't have this kind of worldwide connection uh, information and readily available for everyone. So, um, so that yeah. comes back to technology. You have been in the forefront of technology. One of the things that really um, makes me attracted to your work is not just technology, it's how you think about it and how you put it in the framework of human. And even the words you choose, like in 1983, you started the fastest supercomputing company. When I was at a supercomputing center, you called it a thinking machine, right? And then later I was in 3D printing, doing manufacturing, and you had a manufacturing company you called Applied Mind. I mean, you just have one of those most amazing mind that I know in the modern time. How do you how do you develop that? How do you come how how is that coming about? I, I think of you like the poet of technology. Great of you. But I, I think I was just incredibly lucky to be alive at the right time. I think almost any other time I would have been a real misfit, but I was alive at a time when sort of kooky ideas were appreciated and technology was appreciated and people who thought like I did were able to sort of see what was happening with computers and use them. Whereas actually that would have been a fairly useless skill through most of society. I mean, unless you've been lucky enough to be one of the 10 paid mathematicians in the world or something like that, those skills weren't in high demand until recently. So I, I think I've been just you know very lucky to be alive at a time that's very resonant with the way that I like to think. And I think when we look back, it's gonna be really interesting because I think we'll see this as the moment where the distinction between nature and technology got all fuzzy. So I think we'll look back and we'll call this the entanglement. So like what just happened was the enlightenment where we got control over the rules. And then after that, what we're doing now is the entanglement where we're getting confused as to what is controllable design technology and what is evolved complex nature or evolved complex technology and controllable nature or I mean the the lines are getting very fuzzy so yeah, I think so, so many years ago you, when you were at MIT as a student you already created robots that are touchable you invented this touch sensitive robot skins so in the future when say robot would be almost undistinguishable from human that we are actually live with robot uh, every day, say. And would that change 
us as a human, as homo sapien? What, yeah, well, or do we be involved into something else? Or the other way of putting it is a human is almost indistinguishable from robot. I mean, you were just talking with David, for example, about augmenting your memory, but you know, we're augmenting our senses all the time. We're augmenting our ability to think. And, you know, it's very clear that, you know, we, we now have a way of being connected to each other, which is very primitive, which is I sit here and flap meat inside my mouth. And, you know, that causes some microphone to pick up air vibrations, which sends it over a very sophisticated digital network and then causes some speaker to create air vibrations on your side. I mean, that's a pretty awkward way of transmitting a thought from my mind to your mind or vice versa. So I'm pretty sure that maybe even in our lifetimes, we're going to have better ways. I'm pretty sure we will have better ways to do it. Um, and, but already um, we're connected in ways that were sort of unimaginable to our our grandparents. So I, I, I don't know. I think we're I think we're about to switch into something much more connected, a kind of better form of maybe the way of putting it is I don't think humans are the end of the line. I think we're a step along. We're halfway between animals and something better. So at some point you said when when you created 10,000 years clock you said the pyramid is a symbol of the past and the clock is the symbol of the future and the most difficult thing is to pick something that people care so you pick the clock which is also time that's that's quite interesting um, i wanted to since i have you <laughs> I wanted to talk about something maybe people don't know about you or what you're doing and see uh, what, what are some of the insights you have. What I know is that you also make perfumes. Uh -huh. <laughs> and in the last couple of years, the scent or the smell probably is one of the scents least researched, has some breakthrough, right? We, we, we now know that the smell is the only scent that doesn't change. Like the visual, the oral would change, but the scent would not change. What do you see in the research into the future where the smell, the scent can contribute to our humanity? Okay, let me let's see if I can turn my camera a little bit and you can see my, my perfume making lab back there. <laughs> you see all of those? Yes, yes, yes. But um, so, the reason I make perfume is it uses a completely different part of my mind than almost anything else I do, because it's very hard to attach symbols or words to it. And um, in some sense, it's the only unmediated sense, namely, certainly sound, I translate your words into symbols. And then I, um, I sort of listen to the symbols. Or even when I look at a, a view, I mean, an artist, I think, can look at what they see, but I turn it into symbols and I see, you know, I see a face, a book. Um, with the smells, you can't do that. They go directly into your mind and, and they're kind of directly connected to memory. So have you, have you ever had the sense of, of smelling something and then all of a sudden you're back in a moment? 
Well, there, there's two experiences. One is what I remember when I was young, like my mother's cooking. And if I smell that, it will bring me right back to that time. That's one. The second one is this particular scent in Mid-Eastern country, they call wood, and in Asian, they call it aga wood. And it's one of the scent, when I smell it, it just goes straight to my brain and it brings me somewhere else. Yeah, that's that, that's a pretty that's a wonderful scent. It's actually used a lot in men's colognes, and it's a uh, but uh, it's a it's a wood. Yes. Smell. Yeah. yeah wood. So what 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 in your you're doing with uh, perfume or the smell that you know that surprises you? Well, I guess unfortunately, what I like about it is that I can't describe the feelings that it gives me. So um, I don't have a very good connection between the words and and the smells. So if, if I have a picture, I could describe a picture and you could draw it, but I can't do that with a smell. I mean, I can sort of give analogies. I can say it smells like an orange, but if I was to explain what oud looked, smells like, I mean, yeah, it's a woody smell, but that doesn't tell you much, right? It's a, uh, I mean, for me, smells kind of have colors a little bit. So oud is, you know, to me, it's a deep brown smell, which is not surprising that it's it's woody, but it's a dark smell. And I think, um, but that's almost like, that's just crosstalk with other parts of my, my system. So I think that smells may be kind of the oldest forms of memory. And I bet once we figure out how memory actually works, we'll, we'll find it was built on some of the kind of same molecular systems that that cause smells to work. Um, but I can't talk about it very well. Okay, then we change subject. <laughs> <laughs> but so in the long now, in the in the ten thousand years o'clock that one of the things that really amazed me was how you invented the sound that didn't exist. And you, you, you recognize that those belts that we need to build with the clock uh, for every octave that goes lower, it need to be so much bigger, we would run out of space. And then you invented the sound that, that didn't exist. How, like, describe that, that's so interesting. Yeah, so that's a funny thing that the way that we listen, the way that we establish a pitch, if, if you hear a note on a piano, it's actually many different pitches that are harmonics of each other. And the way that you decide what the pitch is, is your ear finds the least common multiple of all of those harmonics and decides that's the pitch of the note. So even if there's no sound of that pitch, so if I have something that is, let's say 200 hertz, 300 hertz, 400 hertz, 500 hertz, 600 hertz, and I play them all together, your ear will hear that as a pitch of being 100 hertz because that's the only common multiple of all those sounds. So it puts them all together, it thinks that they're all parts of a different sound. So the bells work like that. The bells, I mean, a, a bell that made 100 hertz might be too big, but if we make a bell that simultaneously rings in 200 hertz, 300 hertz, uh, 400 hertz, and so on, it, um, which would have been impossible until recently, but 
um, some very clever people like Anton Haskell at Ospel figured out ways of tuning bells using finite element methods um, so that they could make bells with whatever harmonic structure you wanted. So we, we had them make a bell that were actually a series of bells that had higher levels of harmonics that had a common multiple that wasn't there. And indeed, your ear does um, hear the lower pitch. So it's a, I, I, any, anybody who hasn't heard it should listen to it on the Long Now website. It's really kind of a surprising auditory illusion. So, well, that, that your ear become a mixer, no? Yeah, and it, 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 it's pretty funny. It, um, I think a, a lot of people who made the bells wouldn't didn't believe it worked, but now, now we have like a, a little bell and a big bell and they both sound like the same pitch. Um, yeah, you're, it's, it's not even just a mixer because it depends on some nonlinear property of your ear that your nervous system has learned to group sounds that are synchronized and assume that they're all harmonics of the same sound. I think somebody, we're getting a note here that uh, we're oh, going wait. to finish. Right, at the end of the time, yeah. <laughs> great, it's great to see you, Ping. Yeah, same here. Good to see you. Seeing you in person. And we'll see each other soon. Okay, good. Looking forward to it. And I think, hey, it's Mr. West. Hey. Jimmy, <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you. Been a long time. Yeah, it's good to see you. Are you in Santa Fe? I'm in Santa Fe. I am indeed. I can, I can tell by the quality of the light. It's a. Oh, it's yes. Something yes. magical. <laughs> well, so. So I've been thinking about you lately because you know, you're you have this way of of thinking about systems almost like or, like living organisms and yeah you know, like the metabolic rate of a city or something like that but and I'm I'm sort of thinking if you think of the world as a living organism or society as a living organism it clearly just changed its metabolic rate recently. <laughs> Have you been thinking about that? Well, I did a little bit, actually, in terms of, um, you know, I did have this image that, um, you know, if, if you get sick as an individual, you, um, um, and you get sufficiently sick, you take time out, you go to bed, you may end up in hospital, and so forth. And uh, then, Hopefully you recover in a week, or two weeks, or a few days. And um, of course, um, you have built into your life um, uh, a sort of capacity, a reserve that um, even though you shut down, you're not working, uh, you're not really thinking probably, nevertheless, you have that reserve and then um, you recover. And there's been sufficient reserve um, of energy, metabolism, finances, that it doesn't affect you, even if it is potentially a longer illness. So I was trying to think of that as a metaphor for what's happening to the planet. And of course, what you realize is that um, how little we actually have in reserve, that um, uh, it didn't take very much in terms of us simply as a globe, as a planet going to bed for a few days, a few weeks, a couple months, uh, that we quickly 
sort of ran out, ran out of our resources. And some of the struggle is to try to come to terms with that and to reestablish ourselves. And um, part of the reason for that is, of course, that um, we are sort of, you know, as individuals, we're in a sort of metastable state, whereas the planet is, even on these very short timescales, is continually changing and evolving. And we live at a time where the, um, the socioeconomic forces are themselves exponentially expanding. And this is what causes us the problem, the acceleration of time and the continual pressures that um, is part of the fabric of society. So it, it was sort of an interesting little thought exercise, uh, just in terms of metaphor. Do you think that it's actually a, a fairly recent phenomenon that we have such little reserves? Because a lot of what yes. computers have been used for is actually optimizing out the supply chains and all those extra buffers and those yeah. warehouses and so on. So yeah, that was a sort of yeah, that was sort of corollary to that thinking was exactly that. That um, you know, we talked about um, you know the earlier plagues and uh, pandemics or epidemics, and of course we had much more time. Um, we had, uh, in that sense, we had more reserve. The system could go down for longer, um, but. Uh, but on the other hand, the great thing we have now is a much deeper knowledge, a much deeper way of dealing with um, the situation at both an individual level and hopefully, and that's the big challenge at a collective level. But, um, uh, but it all is um, very much uh, related to this, uh, this, the fact that not only are, are we living in this kind of exponentially expanding socioeconomic universe that we've created in the last 100, 200 years. Um, but that has led to an acceleration of time. So not the kind of linear time that, that we have on our watches and clocks, but a kind of socioeconomic time where life itself is speeding up. And that is one of the things coming up against in dealing with uh, this pandemic. But Actually, in another sense, we've had a great amount of reserve. I mean, in some sense, this is the first epidemic where we've ever had the luxury to stop and try to do something about it because most of history, wouldn't we have been so busy surviving that we couldn't yeah. just stop and have most of society be declared non-essential and hide out while you know a very small amount of society uh, kept the food supply going and, you know, kept essential services going. I mean, that, that seems in some sense like a pretty luxurious situation. That we oh, yeah, we're in a much more, we're, no, I mean, we, we were in a much more uh, strong position, of course, than we would have been 100 years ago. I think in some previous uh, discussion, someone was talking about the, uh, the flu epidemic of 1918. We're in a much better position, of course, than uh, the, the globe was in a uh, hundred years ago. Um, uh, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm confident that uh, we're going to get through this and reestablish ourselves. But um, what I see it as, and I think this also may have come up in some of the previous discussions, is um, I actually see it uh, as more a sort of uh, red light that's going on, a little rehearsal, a big rehearsal 
for some of the bigger questions that we're going to have to face in terms of um, uh, threats to the planet. Um, and they've already been mentioned, the global warming, specifically just the, uh, the whole survivability of our socioeconomic fabric, I think, is, uh, is at risk. And it has, the thing that it has in common with the pandemic, and I'm hoping we learn uh, uh, from the pandemic, is that they're both systems, that is the system as a whole, and this particular case of the pandemic, are both ones that um, are happening at an exponential rate. And one of the things that I think for, it's difficult for people is to understand what exponential means, other than as a colloquial term for uh, something's going very fast. It means something uh, much more profound than that. And that's what we've learned, I hope, collectively in this uh, pandemic. So, so you've made this point before about timescales of cities versus, say, countryside life, um, that cities are specifically have this kind of speeded up mm -hmm. thing. And, and in yeah. fact, versus cities that are having the biggest problem now with the pandemic, um, or at least initially, uh, they are. Do you think that's going to have any permanent effect on you know, the how we think about city city life versus country life or the advantages of cities? Well, this is the great dilemma, of course, really. I mean, you know, I live in a small town, and one of the reasons I live here is that life is a slower pace. I can, uh, you know, it's much more community-oriented, presumably, than living in the, the sort of a sense of anonymity in a very large city. Um, but uh, so it has certain um, advantages and certain uh, attractions. Uh, nevertheless, um, the great thing about a major city, a big city, New York or San Francisco or Los Angeles, is that it increases social connectivity. And it is that increase of social connectivity and the densification of the exchanges that take place, information exchange that leads to wealth creation, innovation, ideas, a greater buzz to life, and so on. And um, the price we pay for that is, of course, one of the things we're living through now, and that is if you live in a big city, that trans that um, exchange between people uh, can also mean that you can exchange viruses. And uh, it means that bigger cities have not only many more cases per capita than smaller cities, smaller towns, but it happens concomitantly faster and it happens in a systematic, quote, predictable way. So, so do you feel personally that during this, does time feel like it's gone faster to you or slower? I mean, during this period? Yes. Ah, that's interesting. I've sort of, you know, I've been um, schizophrenic in a way. I've sort of, on the one hand, I've really enjoyed, I'm a bit of a misanthrope, so I sort of enjoy being sequestered at home, being able to do my own thing, be able to work quietly, um, think more. Um, and I've almost, on the other hand, um, in the kind of work I do, it is crucial to have my colleagues and one of the crucial aspects is, of course, that interaction, the informal interaction, the getting together collaborative, collaboratively to solve uh, the questions we're uh, addressing, thinking about. Um, 
And as other people have remarked, I mean, uh, the um, uh, Zoom and uh, other um, apps have been remarkably useful. I mean, much more. I mean, I was incredibly skeptical and cynical about it, but it's worked extraordinarily well. But one of the things that um, uh, I, I also realize, and I think many of my colleagues and people I interact with do, is in the end, it is, of course, no substitute to being in the same room, sitting around, eyeball to eyeball, bullshitting away, going to the blackboard, et cetera, et cetera. A whole sort of informal dynamic is very hard to construct. And it may be people will be very clever and be able to construct that electronically. But there's something about the three-dimensionality and the way time plays its role that is different in sort of quote real life than the kind of thing we're doing now yeah but uh, i would have guessed though that all that would cause time to sort of feel like it was going slower and to me actually it feels like it's going faster yeah i feel well i i've i've not thought much about time going slower i don't feel i've slowed down you know obviously not getting in the car not going anywhere basically uh not having the same pressures has felt like a relaxation. Whether that translates into the feeling of time slowing down, I'm not so sure, actually. But yeah, um, it's been a very interesting experience for all of it. Obviously, it's a unique experience that we're all sharing and quite remarkable. Do you think people will go back to that 3D thing as much as before? Or do you think they'll actually use teleconferencing much more than they ever did before, that that will be a permanent change. Well, I do think teleconferencing will be used much more uh, than it has in the past. I think this, what this did, of course, was accelerate what was already happening. So that's for sure. On the other hand, um, people will certainly go back to the old ways of having, you know, uh, meetings and in, in, <laughs> in offices and rooms and, and do you so see forth. permanent changes? I think there'll only be, it might be a quantitative change. I'm not so much sure about a qualitative change yet. It's, it's very unclear. Um, but probably, and this is sort of platitudinous in a way, I think it will encourage more and more the acceptance of people working at home, uh, for example, or working in remote locations, unquestionably. Um, I've certainly been practicing that to some extent anyway, and I see that more, I was seeing that more and more um, you know, if I look at our institute and I go back 10, 15 years, on a typical day, certainly, um, especially as towards the end of the day, many, many more people around, lots of interaction. Now, before the pandemic, that, that had decreased significantly. Clearly, there was much more use of um, uh, in, uh, IT processes and apps and so forth. So I think that will get enhanced. But in the end, I think there's no substitute for getting together. I was thinking the other day, by the way, I was wondering, you know, if, it, if you took it to the extreme, and this is how we end up interacting almost all of the time, this is it, so to speak. We move into this world. Can we survive? I mean, is there something, is it, is it like sleep? That, you know, um, if, if you deprive someone of sleep entirely, but you give them as much nutrition, food as they want, as much entertainment as they want, everything else they want, 
except you cannot sleep, then you die. So I've been intrigued by the idea, how much can we tolerate in terms of what's built into our brain at present, uh, where we're remote from other human beings, where, where social contact as, um, in terms of physical proximity is, how important is that ultimately? Yeah, I just, I mean, I'm curious also how the distribution, people are, I believe, isolating in small groups. It would be interesting to see what the distribution of yeah. group sizes is. Um, now, are you, how are you doing? Are you sort of sequestered, I mean, entirely? I mean, are you? I'm with my wife, but then we also, we just uh, connected with, um, one of my grandchildren and uh, her grandparents. <laughs> so, um, you know, but we both followed the same rules for two weeks before we merged our little cells for a while. And, and I mean, that was a, it was a pleasant experience. So I can't imagine a society where certainly people, you know, don't casually get together in huge groups on a regular basis. Um, but it becomes more a special thing that you do some preparation for. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can't either. So, uh, but it was, it brought up that issue. You know, I was just being, a, of course, a physicist. I like to, to extrapolate and see, you know, what is, uh, what, what, what is the sort of asymptotic vision that could come from this, namely as a thought experiment, where this is the way we interact. But I do find that, that I'm interacting with a lot of my friends that I probably wouldn't be like you, you know, probably I would wait until yeah. next time I was in Santa Fe before I saw you, but sure. I'm you now. So I actually find there's quite a few people who I probably would, wouldn't have seen for a while that I've actually interacted more with. And so yes. I don't think the number of people I interact with every day has gone down. It, it's maybe gone up. Um, man, it's, it's certainly where they are is, is less of an issue because it's almost mm. the same to interact with somebody across the globe as it is to interact with somebody down the street. In fact, mm. I literally you know, use the same technology. So I don't mm. know. I think one of the permanent things that may change is our view of the size of the world and our connectedness with people in the world. But, yeah. Yes, no, I agree, and I think it. Uh, and I think you were discussing with Ping this uh, um, uniqueness of this is its universality. That is, it isn't like you know uh, the first or second world war. Um, it, it isn't like um, you know um, even the depression and, and, uh, uh, in the in the late twenties. Um, it, it this one truly affects, and certainly potentially truly affects every human being on the planet. And because of the rapid communication and the globalization of communication and information exchange, everybody is tuned into it. And, uh, and I think you said earlier, and I thought that was really good, I think drawing an analog to something much cruder, and that is um, uh, the whole earth picture. I mean, Stuart's whole earth picture, which I think uh, also was a defining moment. And in that sense, kind of socio-psychologically, 
this is a new defining moment in terms of uh, a global community, good or bad, by the way. So I hope it's you know, one thing I was yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, I hope I, I hope it's going to be good. But by the yes, I hope it's good. It may not be. I mean, I hope it is. I, uh, so one of the things I was thinking in terms of global uh, in that sense, and uh, uh, you will certainly appreciate it with your background. One of the things I was thinking of that hasn't sort of come through is the um, that what has happened from the beginning of this um, is a the ultimate butterfly effect, namely an, a sort of arbitrary accidental mutation takes place in a virus, presumably in China. And out of that, within an extremely short time, we're running out of yeast. <laughs> we're, we have no football in, in the United States. We have no football in Spain. Um, we, uh, and so on and so forth. All these huge, so to speak, unintended consequences resulting from this one arbitrary accidental uh, uh, phenomenon that happened at a microscopic scale, producing something at an exponential rate um, across the globe on a macroscopic scale. Actually, and uh, quite extraordinary. No, so it's, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. Butterfly effect. It's like a literal event that we know, you know, one chemical bond got changed and the whole world changed. Yes. yes. Exactly. It's one of those things. That's right. Exactly. That's lovely. So, we don't need to. Yeah, the, the extra, so, so it was the extraordinary sensitivity to one thing. One, you know, that's remarkable. Well, I'm going to leave you to discuss that with the next person in the conversation. But uh, thank you for ending on such well, a. It was lovely to see you again. Yes. We, will yeah. stay, we will stay closer in touch. <laughs> well, hopefully next time we'll, we'll, we'll meet in Santa Fe. Yes, I hope so. Always welcome. Okay. Well, Take care. Uh, uh -huh. Ah, Stuart. Hi, Jeff. <laughs> I can't hear you. Maybe if Stuart restarts, we'll be able to get him back. But um, Jeffrey, sure. uh, I was, uh, I think one of the things that has, you and Danny talk, talk, touched on this a little bit, but you know, the, this kind of uh, inexorable rise of urbanism that has felt inexorable for the last century, um, I think I've, we've heard many times um, that the you know the one kind of thing that could really stop this and did stop it during other plagues was was a pandemic, and um, you know what your thoughts are on the lasting effects of that. I think but you know the difference between previous pandemics and and this one is people's um, capability to connect remotely in a way that they haven't been and maybe getting used to that. Um, but what's your what's your take on the the larger trends of urbanism and um, and pandemics versus these other things that may continue to, to cause urbanism. Well, first, let me just say about that, uh, um, you know, the, the differences between previous major pandemics and now, especially, you know, when one refers to the Great Plague, the Black Plague and so forth. Of course, it's not just um, that we have this uh, rapid information dissemination but much more importantly, we understand what's going on. I mean, we know the science, and I'm 
uh, we understand the science of, uh, of viruses and to the extent we need to for this, at least, uh, in terms of the reason why we've ended up with a pandemic. Uh, and that was not understood, of course, at times of the medieval plagues. And so we're in a much stronger position. And uh, going back to the theme of this, you know, had we, um, if, if, if our politicians and policymakers understood what an exponential was, they would have acted immediately. Um, and uh, we wouldn't be in quite the situation we're in, but nevertheless, it is, uh, it's, it's been a huge improvement. Now, to your question about the, the, the role of what, what possible effect it might have on um, urbanization, um, it, it's unclear, but I think it proceeds probably independent of this. Um, I don't think, even though it is the cities, as, as we were, Danny and I were discussing, where, um, which enhance, so to speak, that, that enhancement of connectivity, which leads to all the, the wealth and idea creation and the greatness of cities and leads to the kind of quality and standard of life we, we, we all enjoy. Um, that connectivity, greater connectivity leads to greater disease and uh, not just more, but getting it faster. And um, I, I don't think there's been enough of it, hor horrible thing to say, um, that it will in any way arrest um, the uh, continued attraction of major cities uh, because that is the place that um, enhances social interaction. That's what the city is. It's this machine that we invented, maybe the greatest machine we ever invented, so that we can enhance and facilitate and uh, amplify social interaction. So, and, and I think that seems to be, in terms of modern human beings, that's who we are. So Indeed. I think it, if it does anything, it will be a blip. Yeah, I, was, I remember seeing the um, the data for after the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco that there was a huge, well, a reasonably a trackable exodus to um, the Pacific yeah. Northwest that that held pretty tr held pretty steady once people bought new homes and whatnot. Uh, we're going to pull Stuart back in and see if his sound issues. Are you there, Stuart? I hope so. Can oh, you, hear you are there. Yes. Oh, All right. Okay. I'll, I'll duck out and talk to Stuart at the end. Uh, thank you guys very much for the patience. Okay. Stuart, can you hear me now? I can uh, hear you, and uh, I hope you can hear me. So uh, I can hear you. Uh, you know, I Good love what you. you've been doing with cities all these years. I'm glad you're talking about it just now because um, I have a question of where you go when you founded, when you've pursued all the way into the ideas or cities of this greatest machine that humans have made, that it accelerates everything and that in many ways cities are capable of creating problems, but they are so innovative because of proximity and everything else, the intensity of the economy, the intensity of interaction, that uh, they can solve problems even faster than they create them. And so they, they are a source of new solutions for civilization as a whole. And civilization usually means what happens in cities anyway. So then, in your books, uh, Scale Strongly and the two talks you've given at the Long Now Foundation, um, you're saying this is good news, good news, good news. And then sort of two thirds of the way, three quarters of the way through your presentation, you go, but oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, 
uh, acceleration cannot go in on indefinitely. So clearly we're headed for some kind of uh, terrible smash up and cities are accelerating us toward a deep problem. Um, is this entirely theoretical or do you see, and maybe psychological, or do you, do you see data that would support uh, the idea that cities can accelerate themselves um, catastrophically? Well, uh, the data strongly supports the, the theoretical grounding about the um, cities as an accelerator, so to speak, right. and facilitator of um, you know, socioeconomic activity, the good, bad, and the ugly, so to speak. Um, so um, that, yes. But for the last part of your question, no, I don't think there's any evidence, and that is definitely speculation, that it is this phenomenon that um, is potentially going to lead to a collapse if we don't understand it in a deeper way and come to terms with it, because it is at the root of something was discussed earlier in one of the conversations about this accelerating pace of life, things getting faster and faster, we're losing control, so to speak. Um, and, uh, and, and so even though the evidence supports that, of course, it's if you just extrapolate that, it's not, it's, that's the speculation, then um, we, it's, we're not, we cannot adapt fast enough to keep up with the changes that we have brought upon ourselves by this phenomenon. And I think that's the issue, is that um, the, the pace of life continually increased by this marvelous, marvelous ability we have to interact just as we're doing in this, um, in a positive feedback mechanism, creating ideas, making things better, bigger, better, and so forth. But a price to pay, and the price to pay is life gets faster, and at some stage, we're not able to keep up with it. That's sort of the idea. And do you think that stage is pretty soon? Because the same worry has been stated, I'm 81, how old are you? I'm uh, 80 this year. Okay. I'm 80 so, about six months, no, it's nine months. There you go. So both of us have been hearing our whole range. Yeah. Both of us have been hearing for on the order of 60 years while we were paying attention. Right. People saying things are going too fast. We've got to slow down. Um, we've got to go back to the countryside and you're partway there. Um, and every time people said it's going too fast, it wasn't too fast. It kept going faster. and and mostly we were rewarded by the faster that happened. This is a little bit what Danny was challenging, I think, with you. Um, because Danny pointed out that we have so much reserve now that you and I and a zillion other people simultaneously are communicating over a completely germ-free mode. <laughs> uh, the viruses are completely stumped. They have not figured out a way to get from my microphone to your headphone. And they're not gonna. <laughs> and this is all the kind of urban invention, application, innovation, and acceleration that uh, we're relishing and probably managing this pandemic in many ways better than previous ones. The economy may be fragile in important new ways. And I'd love to talk to you about that in a minute. 
but um, is it okay if I don't share your pessimism that that uh, continuing acceleration in, in cities is necessarily a a, uh, a path to cataclysm? Well, Stuart, you and I have argued this before <laughs> on several occasions, right? Uh, and, um, and and so far, you're not right. Uh, no, how much longer do we have to live before I say, okay, sorry, Jeff, you were right, I was wrong. Yeah, I'm afraid we're not going to live long enough. I, I'm pleased to say, I'm actually pleased to say we're not going to live long enough to see it. Say um, why? Wait, wait, say why? That's see a collapse, to see the collapse. I oh. doubt that you and I will live long oh, enough to see the collapse. See. But, uh, but well, our children, we're, we're, children. We're saying the tragedy of experiencing the collapse. Yeah, you and I, have, have a, yes, uh, which is a good, good statement. Uh, but wow. um, uh, I think um, the point is that life has sped up, mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, data is um, is incontrovertible. Um, not only that, as part of that speeding up, and part of the reason that we've heard these um, sort of uh, themes of Armageddon in the past is that um, people. Uh, typically, you know, whether it's the Club of Rome or going back to Malthus or going to um, uh, Ehrlich and so forth, right. um, that um, and that was more focused, of course, on population, but it's intimately related, of course, was that... Um, that was, a, remember, that was the great exponential that was going to kill us all, was population. Exactly, exactly. And the thing that was missing from those arguments was the argument that the comeback to those always was well you haven't taken into account sort of what you said we innovate we create new ideas we create new things and so um, from my viewpoint the way i think of that is we sort of reset the clock and start over again we discover computers and that sets off a whole new thing and then from computers we discover it and that sets off a new thing and so on but here's the thing that in order for that to continue, you have to do that faster and faster. It's not only the life gets faster, but you have to make these major paradigm shifts as you faster and faster, so that um, something that might have taken um, you know fifty to hundred years to develop a thousand years ago now only takes ten to fifteen years, and soon it will only have to take five to ten years, and then two to three years. So it's sort of a reductio ad absurdum argument. At some stage, you can't have the equivalent to an IT revolution every six months. Uh, so okay, I propose a, stage, a, 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 parallel, a parallel version. How about the Zeno's civilization? Zeno's yes. paradox is that the arrow, arrow never reaches the target because it's always only halfway there. And yeah. you know, halfway to the rest of the way, halfway to the rest of the way, and blah, blah, blah. Part of this right. is a singularity notion. And the singularity notion, I think we probably agree, has got a lot of things wrong with it. Among other things, it's bad physics. But um, it, the, so, the thing about living on these curves is that within it, 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 keeps, it keeps surprising us by seeming manageable. So you know the, the butterfly effect that got loose from a virus with a mutation. Viruses and bacteria, and indeed the interiors of our brains or immune systems, operate at a drastically faster rate than you mm -hmm. and I or the civilization. Mm -hmm. 
And so a lot more speed is possible. Uh, do you think it's just a question of pace or of size that they're little and therefore they can go faster or are we going to yes. uh, be able to approach yes. their speed? Yes, this, the, the laws of biology, the scaling laws of biology right. um, have systematically built into them um, that uh, the, um, the smaller you are, typically, the faster everything goes. Right. So a mouse, you know, a mouse, which is to all intents and purposes, scaled down elephant, um, its metabolism and all its physiological functions are working much faster in a systematic, predictable way than an elephant. Um, and indeed, that's why a mouse only lives a couple of years and an elephant can live to maybe 70 years. So, um, uh, so yes, yeah, so, and in fact, one Sorry. of the great things is that there's these, all these enormously different timescales. And that's one of the things we're battling. Well, let me the, put it to you that in terms of complex adaptive systems, uh, ever bigger cities and ever more connected civilizations as complex systems are approaching the complexity of brains, of immune systems, of uh, cellular level metabolism. And uh, just as you showed with cities that biological scaling doesn't apply, at least in terms of metaphor and maybe more literally than that, we are getting more and more microbial in the nature of our interactions. Would you buy that? Well, I'm not too, what do you mean by, by microbial? I mean, um, fast and really, really um, intense. Uh, intense where it is, you know, the fact that Danny is meeting more people uh, this week than most weeks, um, that you there in Santa Fe are in the thick with of a bunch of us in San Francisco and Boston and whatnot in a pretty dense way. Yeah, we can't both go up to the board, but, you know, actually, if we had a, a uh, screen put up here, we could do that. So all we're missing is each other's smell. Um, and uh, it turns out you can do a lot of communication uh, without it. And that's part of why we're not passing germs to each other for a similar reason. So uh, you know, maybe this is the future of cities is it is um, a kind of a, an increasingly digitized interaction. And that this, we are now visiting it because of this pandemic sort of in Danny's view, the whole earth as a whole city. Uh, and it is, we have the kind of immediacy with one another, with seeing what the hell's going on in Wuhan and what the hell's going on in Italy and Lombardy, um, with, with a closeness as if we're all in the same town. And the town is accelerating, as towns do, if you point it out. So in a sense, you're, the acceleration that you've been saying, you've been measuring sort of New York by New York and Los Angeles by Paris and London by Shanghai and whatnot, now we have a planet-sized city, in a sense, that's coming clear to us. And that's going to accelerate everything even more. Uh, we could uh, put up a test for this and say, how soon are we going to get a vaccine for this uh, virus? Uh, in the old days, it was how many years? In this year, 
How many months do you think? No, I, I, uh, I mean, I agree with your general trend of thought, absolutely. Um, but um, it's clear that uh, this kind of technology has uh, changed and uh, the form of interaction um, and uh, has um, brought many of us closer over uh, great distances. It's done, it's accelerated what began with the steam engine and the telephone a hundred over a hundred years ago. That is the steam engine contracted space. Oh. I mean, up until the steam engine, most people didn't move more than 10 or 20 miles from where they lived in their whole life. Uh, so that opened up uh, space and the telephone um, contracted time because before then you had to wait, you know, at least a day and sometimes a month, maybe even longer to communicate. So that has happened and that's been inextricably happening and getting faster and faster. And indeed, in that sense, the world is contracting both in space and time. And, uh, and associated with that is the acceleration of time, the shortness of the, the, the shortening of space, but the acceleration of time. And my concern is, um, what is the limit to that? Um, and also associated with that, something I brought up with Danny, is um, as we get more and more into this kind of communication, like we're doing now, mm -hmm. um, how, um, how much of the old communication where I need to be near you and smell you and touch you and see your, 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 your three-dimensionality um, mm -hmm. and your movement and so forth, how much of that do I viscerally need as part of being a human being? And I compare that to this idea that... Uh, you know, you need to sleep. You can get everything else in your life. You can have, you know, as much money as you like and as much nutrition as you like and as much entertainment as you like. But if you don't sleep, you die, period. So is it like that? To what extent is it like that? I think that's a, a question that, that, that actually this is bringing up a little bit in terms of our collective behavior as related to our individuality. Well, it's interesting that one of the things that cities do is they're, they're 24 hours compared to countryside towns oh. and uh time zones is suddenly becoming an issue uh for all of us when we try to communicate with our friends in asia or friends in europe or whatever somebody's got to get up in the middle of the night and it sucks and, and <laughs> well, the other thing I, the other thing i get from the story you just told is you know when railroads came along people probably said well that's it for cities everybody's just going to disperse well, i'm sure when uh, telegraph and telephone came on that. Well, that's it. Everybody's just going to go be on a beach in Sydney. And that keeps not happening that we keep yeah. getting cities. So right. I guess that's, uh, well, I wish I could go on. I, we've got a message here, Stuart, that says this is time guys. So right. I guess I have to bow out and, uh, I've really enjoyed reconnecting with you. Yes. Our conversation. So maybe we should do this independent of love now and all the rest. Why the hell not? Plus, I assume Santa Fe is, is in the thick of the fight on all of this, and we'd love to hear about right. that another time. Yeah, sure. Okay. Take care. Be well. Hey, Stuart. Hey, um, Andrew. Joining yeah. you from the interval. Right. Thank you for saving the situation there. I'm sorry oh, no I don't have a, a good uh, recording of this, but somehow they blitzed each other. Um, I have a question for you, Xander, uh, which is, 
you're putting more and more time into the organizational continuity project and looking at, among other things, institutions and organizations that will be, uh, that have been capable of carrying on and being useful and productive a very long time, centuries, um, sometimes more. From the perspective of what you've done in terms of research and finding people on that subject so far, where does a global phenomenon of the scale and, and uh, intensity of this pandemic, where does that fit in with the whole business of organizational continuity? Well, I think it's, you know, it's fundamentally, it goes to the, the issue of resilience. And I think that, you know, any, any organization that has lasted for centuries has lived through multiple things like this. Um, any business that's been around for just exactly, you know, 102 years uh, lived through the last one of, of these pandemics that was, you know, uh, much, much more vast, much more, much less understood, what uh, came through with much less um, communication. Um, and so, you know, as I'm talking, I'm talking right now to heads of companies that have been around for several hundred years, and they're actually, they're in some cases, depending on, you know, some of the better family run ones and even some of the corporate ones that have um, good records, they, they are actually pulling from those times. Mm -hmm. And and they, I think even more importantly than pulling, you know, the exact strategic things that help them survive those times, they're able to tell the story that they survived to their own corporate hmm. or organizational culture, which is really powerful because, you know, the, so many, so many narrative from, you know, our government and other people who are, you know, I think they're largely trying to, um, in a way, get out from under the gun of saying this was a predictable event, even though it was, um, is that they're they're trying to say that this was a complete black swan. We couldn't have known it was going to happen, which I think does two things. It, it obviously it discounts all of this previous predictional prediction work and planning work that um, that in some cases has been heated by some cultures, in some cases not. But I think more importantly, it, it gets people out of this narrative that we have survived, that we can survive, that things are going to come back to normal, that you know they can come back so far to normal that we're actually going to be bad at planning for the next one in a hundred years if we don't put in new safeguards. And I think that's a getting that narrative back in to the story um, that we do survive these things. Things do go back to normal. You know, we're watching movies right now on Netflix where you watch people touch and interact and it just seems alien. <laughs> that feels alien. Um, but, we, you know, we will, we will forget it, I think, quicker than we, than we adopted it. Well, one of the things I'll bet you'll be teasing out as you do this research is different kinds of organizations and different kinds of institutions responding in different ways to these kinds of sudden shocks. Um, it occurs to me that when Peter Schwartz was talking about scenario planning back at the beginning with, with Catherine Fulton, um, governments have to do scenarios if they're responsible at all that include pandemics. And the scenarios are supposed to result in some kind of preparation for that. But companies and nonprofits and other organizations that come to mind, uh, even if they do scenarios, are probably not going to include pandemics. So the, for them, it's going to be an exogenous, out of the blue whammy uh, from an unexpected direction. In California, we expect earthquakes, but not necessarily pandemics. And how does that play out with these various kinds of organizations? Do they have adaptivity, 
built in where they can catch on fast and respond fast? Or do they have some kind of reserves where uh, they have a, a, a lot that they can fall back on that is still completely viable? What are you finding? Um, well, I think, you know, again, it goes back to the resiliency question. And I think even, you know, when Long Now was in our infancy and the, the dot-com crash hit, um, you know, we were very lucky right at that moment to have also gotten a pretty large government research grant for our Rosetta project, which really carried us through that time mm -hmm. because all of our entire, entirely all of our donors were from a high-tech segment part of the world that all of a sudden felt very poor. Um, and we had no other we had no other segments um, and it was really that moment where we chose we could have collapsed but we you know we chose to in fact expand and start the the seminar series um, the seminar series um, expanded us into having a membership program um, and having all of these you know eventually things like the interval which i'm standing in now which is closed and is now a, a, a revenue stream that has stopped but our membership program has continued and and uh, we know that many people are you know having to cancel their memberships at this time because they've lost their jobs but but largely we're in a vastly better position than had we again you know only had one segment of, of income and I think what you're going to see from many companies many institutions um, even ones that are you know that are highly in the service industry like restaurants and bars they're they already are building new skill sets and to go and um, and services and delivery services they're not replacements you know obviously but they are there's skill sets that I think people are going to be thinking through. And, you know, I think in general, this notion of who is an, you know, an essential worker versus who is not. And I think, interestingly, a lot of us knowledge workers uh, who flew around to conferences and gave talks, um, turns out we're not that required for, you know, we can fully take a break <clears throat> for a while um, and or we can um, we can um, chime in remotely via technologies like these. So I think, you know, I think we've radically redefined um, the notion of what is essential. I really hope it equals um, changes in pay rates for people that actually keep cities running. And you're working on maintenance right now, which I'd love to touch on, um, and your book on maintenance is that, you know, these guys who keep the sewers working and the water lines working and, um, and not just guys, I mean, uh, women as well, the, they are these unsung heroes that, um, you know, in some cases get pretty reasonable government pay and pensions, but in a lot of cases, certainly at the entry level, they're, they're really undervalued. And when we get into, you know, grocery checkout and bus drivers, um, very much so. So I'm, I'm curious as to how, what's, what's this making you think about the maintenance world? Well, it's interesting how much um, writers and intellectuals and whatnot uh, are discovered to be non-essential and uh that's great and by the way it's also the case that we uh, if i'm working on a book frankly i haven't changed my work life at all i've been sitting in this office researching and heading toward writing a book uh with or without the coronavirus going on so uh, in a sense we're doing okay this is all part of you know danny's point of civilization not crashing uh, when we have a, a uh, epidemic now that's pretty interesting um, but to your point about maintenance, what we're discovering or rediscovering, and I guess it's a constant rediscovery, you only notice infrastructure when it's not working. And you only maybe notice the essential um, pathways of civilization and the people that are handling and driving the buses, they're moving the food that are 
uh, manning the ships that are nursing the suddenly great increase of patients and so on. Um, you notice them under circumstances like this. This is sort of the maintainer's big day. Uh, and it's a chance to honor them, to howl for them in Mill Valley at 8 o'clock in the evening and to clap for them in the streets of uh, Lombardy and New York and whatnot. Uh, certainly the healthcare workers. But my perspective is that all maintenance is healthcare, that all maintenance is about you're trying to maintain something or fix something. Uh, and, and that's part of healing the larger system that the something is part of. Uh, so if you're driving a bus now under parlous circumstances, uh, you are not just keeping that bus going and the guys back at the, you know, the you know, doing the repairs on the bus to keep it going uh, through uh, what must be a little harder situation. Um, you're, you're maintaining transportation in a city which needs it. And so you're maintaining the city. And the city is maintaining, you know, we were just talking with uh, Jeffrey about what city's role in civilization. Cities are maintaining civilization. So we're seeing all the levels of maintenance kind of emerging under a shock like this. Um, and it's not just a question of honoring them. As you point out, it's a question of damn well rewarding them for the essential service that they're providing. And um, that may be one of the things that comes out of this emergency that is uh, productive for the how civilization conducts itself. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a good point that you bring up that the, um, the knowledge workers, while they have been found to be non-essential, are actually the ones whose paychecks have yet to stop for lar large part because, right. you know, you know our, whole, our whole administration here and at Longnow was able to start working from home a week, you know, a full week before the, the, the orders came down to do so, um, which we did, and, um, and I'm glad we did. Um, but it's been, you know, much, it's been much easier to figure out um, their, their roles uh, in terms of pay roles at, uh, at the company than the ones that we have uh, of live service workers, which have, you know, we've maintained so far, but it has been a struggle. Um, but I, I think it's, I, I'd like to come back to something actually we started today with when I was talking with Bina um, <clears throat> and thinking of, you know, what are some of the positive long interval predictable events that change the world. And um, as I was listening to you and Jeffrey talk, I, I realized that you actually are famous for predicting one of them, which was that that picture of the whole earth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was there, there was some moment where once we had space faring things that it was inevitable that we were going to get that shot. And um, there was few people before we got that shot that were raising their hand around it. Um, you were one of them. And I think, you know, uh, there's these other space-based ones like, here, you know, our first communication with intelligent life from not on our planet, or at least even finding evidence of, of life on other planets um, will be in this category. Um, but I'm curious, what's your take on this? You know, th we're going through a negative one right now. Um, do you have other thoughts on positive ones that, that you can think of or that um, that this one gives you reflection on the, the whole Earth image? Well, to your point, Danny was really the one who made it clear faster than I did that this is a whole Earth event, um, that it is, it, 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 it is a global pandemic. Um, 
it's having to be dealt with in a global way or it'll just keep re-emerging and coming back and haunting everybody. Uh, and it's not like the Cold War possible, possible nuclear annihilation back when that was a major threat uh, where that was just something that was happening to people. Uh, this is happening by people and uh, any solutions are, are being sorted out by people. Uh, you know, initially at the level of uh, staying at home, wearing a mask and things like that, uh, volunteering various things to help other people, which is a, a great emergent property that is always good when it reminds people how, how much um, human kindness there is that you can draw on. And it is part of our great reservoir. Uh, I see it as, as several people have mentioned, as practice for uh, dealing with a much tougher problem, which is climate change, and uh, a one that has a different time scale. And this is where Long Now comes in, uh, where now, after this, and it, it will sort out, it'll take a lot longer to sort out than people think, but some aspects are already sorting out faster than people expected. As this thing sorts out, and and people arise and say, well, that was weird and terrible and we lost so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and we grieve. Um, but it looks like we're coming through it. Uh, humans, in a sense, caused it um, by you know, making it so that bat viruses could get into humans more easily uh, and then connecting in a way that the virus could get to everybody. Uh, but also humans were able to solve it. Well, all of that is almost perfectly mapped onto climate change, only with a different time scale. In a sense, everybody is causing it by running, being part of a civilization running a much higher metabolic rate, uh, using that much more energy driven by fossil fuels, which then screwed up the atmosphere enough to screw up the climate enough to where it became a global problem caused by basically global activity of everybody. And it's going to engage global solutions. Um, probably in light of what Jeff Foss was saying, it'll be you know, uh, innovators in cities communicating with other innovators in other cities who will come up with the needed set of solutions to emerge and get economy back on its legs much later than people want, but nevertheless, get it back. And, um, and then we'll say, okay, well, what do you got next? because there'll now be this point of reference and it'll be like, if we can put a man on the moon, we should be able to blah, blah, blah. Well, if we can solve coronavirus and stop a plague that, was, that affected everybody, we should be able to do the same damn thing for climate. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, actually, I, I, was, um, you know, I was having one of those existential bedtime conversations with my 10-year-old uh, putting her to bed the other night and you know it's kids living through this are you know especially you know social oh. social young ones um <clears throat> are seeing this from a you know a pretty pretty interesting light and i think one of the things that i realized in a way you know there was the world war ii generation is often called the greatest generation um and they 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 had insurmountable problems in front of them, but they were so clearly defined um, that it became uh, you know being able to 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 charge at them the way the way in a way this pandemic is also a huge problem, but it's the 
really the the issues with it are very clearly defined. And I think the difference with climate change is that the issues with it are a lot less clearly defined. And um, and unless we have an event like you know the Gulf Stream shutting off, um, the the results of and the deaths are you know highly um, regionalized in you know in greater storm volatility and things like that, which are much more difficult than, you know, when the person who doesn't believe in the in the pandemic gets up and says he doesn't believe it, and then two weeks later is sick or dying. Um, it becomes this, you know, this brutal string of irony and reality that is unescapable by just standing up in front of people and saying it, that the reality is something different, which I think people have gotten very used to doing, especially politicians. Um, just saying that there's a different reality and then having, you know, having it never circle back. And this is this this pandemic it has a just a brutal and all pandemics, I suspect, do have this brutal return circle of of that problem. Um, and I think, you know, this pandemic is dif fundamentally different than the last one is that most of the people in the last one had no idea how global it was. Right. Interesting. Um, and you know, it took it took months and years of writing letters of and people dying on the way to deliver letters, and you know that uh, and the fact that they were delivering them was spreading the pand their pandemic. I mean, it was just you know these kind of knowing how how you know we had a we had a we had a model of the genome of this virus on our shores before the virus got here. Mm -hmm. and that is yeah. a tremendously different version of a pandemic than the the nineteen eighteen pandemic. And as you know, David Eagleman and Ping were talking about earlier today, um, you know, the the things like the internet are do fundamentally change these things. They give us a perspective that creates the world view on it that allows us to go after it as a world problem and not just think that, oh, well, my problem is I have to move to the country and get away from the people around me. Now, that is the local solution, but that is not the global solution that will stop it from circling back, just like the 1918 and smallpox and these other um, pandemics um, circled back you know, to culture after culture because of that lack of global understanding. Well, I think in a way you're you're making my my point there, which is that the thing that a, a pandemic like this and climate change have in common is that scientific understanding and engineering approach to solving problems that is common in both of them. And um, scientific understanding uh, is, is not often intuitively obvious. Uh, so asymptotic uh, growth of a pandemic is not we're used to linear growth and and when it goes exponential we're, we're constantly surprised by the, you know every doubling catches us by surprise but the scientist is sort of able to prepare us increasingly for that kind of surprise and then the engineers who are you know in the same labs in many cases are saying yeah okay now that we understand just enough of this to start to try some serious solutions here, try this, try this, try this, try this. Now that didn't quite work, but it partly worked and blah, blah, blah. And so the, the science and engineering angle on things um, comes to the forefront. It's sort of like we were saying about maintainers and where politics is kind of the, the big argument that we like to pay attention to uh, most of the time and science is sort of muttering away in the background in a situation like this, science and engineering come to the forefront and the politics is seen to only be effective when it moves in accord with the science and engineering. And if it gets in the way, everybody's very unhappy with the politics, which we're seeing right now. 
I think we will increasingly realize that relationship in the context of climate. What do you think? Um, I think, well, one, we're at, we're at time, um, but um, I think the, um, I think you're absolutely right. I think we're going to, you know, the other thing is we're watching is the conversation I had with Kevin Kelly a while ago is that we're watching science play out in real time. And, you know, and when even when science, often scientists disagree for years about something before they come to uh, an eventual agreement on that. And we're watching that play out in the public and the discourse, which is makes it very difficult to understand, even for, you know, highly educated, careful thinkers and media consumers to know where the best um, information sources are. And I think, um, you know, we're going to be struggling with that um, as part of this Um through the entire process and it's not going to be clear um, until someone gets an injection in their arm and really doesn't get the disease you know what science is is winning um, and i think even that's going to come at an uneven levels from multiple different technologies being deployed in multiple different countries simultaneously and they're going to have varying degrees of success and lo longevity uh, and side effects and all of these things and it's going to be it'll you know lacking a world government and structure we're going to be we get to watch it happen in a very uneven, entangled fashion, as Danny would put it. Uh, but we're past time. Um, do you have any last words before we sign off? Well, your 10-year-old daughter is now uh, in a cohort, and, um, and she is uh, a generation that is being defined uh, by this global event. Uh, she's going to be, you know, she already speaks uh, very good Chinese, but I think this is going to make her even more of a global creature along with everybody else of her age. Yeah, well, that was that was what I tried to tell her is as horrible as this is, as we have family members getting sick um, and coworkers getting sick, that um, this will be a um, this will be a memory of hers that will make her stronger and she will have lived through it and she will get to tell her generations about it. And I hope it will be useful for all going forward. Here, here. Um, well, thank you for helping me close this out. And I want to thank all of you guys who tuned in. Um, this was a fantastic uh, day of conversation. It was fun to be here, uh, although totally alone at the interval, which is both sad and happy. Um, and to, to see uh, all your comments coming in over the various streams. Uh, a reminder that uh, this Thursday night at 7.30 p.m., we have uh, we resume our main seminar series with uh, Jane Metcalf on the Neobiological Revolution. And, um, and really, it'll be a moment for us to um, reflect on how synthetic biology um, from various parts of the bleeding edge that she'll be reporting on um, are going to be um, part of the story that we're living through now and how we um, how we actually solve um, issues like uh, pandemics. And so I think it'll be a pretty important one. Um, and then coming up after that, we'll have uh, Lawrence Doyle from Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence uh, talking about animal-human communication and what that means for potential um, communication with other species. So our seminar series and our interval series will also be uh, resuming uh, all in virtual formats. We will be here um, continuing to bring content. Um, all the streams we've moved out from behind the paywall to the front of the paywall. Um, we appreciate your membership and your support. Um, while we do this, um, but we want to make sure that we get the information and the content um, and the community uh, sharing um, among all of yourselves. And so thank you so much for listening and for your support. Alexander, signing off. Thank you so much. This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this seminar, you might enjoy other talks in this series and also check out Long Now's other podcast about long-term thinking, Conversations at the Interval. Thank you for listening.